And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. And welcome to another edition, a very intriguing and rather uh, impromptu edition, I might add, of The Other Side of Midnight for this May 1st, 2021. Welcome, one and all. Um, I had a number of things planned tonight, and as Murphy would have it, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. So we're going to be doing a lot of improvisation. Let me give you a kind of a kind of a sound bite to, to let you know what's going on. Yeah, and uh, at this point, you know, we are targeting off the coast of Panama City, Florida for tonight's splashdown. We've gotten several good weather reports. And- we have a live astronaut landing right in the middle of the other side of midnight tonight. So what we're going to do is we're going to flip back and forth between here in the land of enchantment, uh, Houston, the Houston uh, uh, Manned Space Flight Center in Houston, Texas, and SpaceX, which is, of course, in Hawthorne, California, Southern California, because we have four astronauts coming back to Earth. They have separated from the space station. They are literally in transit. It takes about six and a half hours to come back. <clears throat> this is mission control. So let's uh, kind of dip in and listen for a second. So uh, we have a question here. How long is the flight from deorbiting and splashdown? Um, so the last hour, so from approximately 11 p.m. PST until about midnight, uh, it's going to be exciting. So uh, that's when the deorbit burn will happen. And at the end of that hour, we'll, we're expecting to splash down. So um, about an hour from when we start that deorbit burn, we should be expecting to splash down. Uh, and then, you know, after that recovery operations will begin, where we will send out boats, make sure everything is safe. And then we will start to uh, scoop up the dragon and then eventually open up the hatch and, uh, you know, welcome our astronauts back to Earth. Uh, after their six-month journey in uh, in space. Speaking of splashdown, we are getting some more good news. The WB. Anyway, that is SpaceX in Hawthorne, California. There are two commentators. Uh, there's also a representative uh, of NASA at uh, Houston at Mission Control for the International Space Station and the Dragon flight. This is the return of the Dragon spacecraft uh, resilient. Uh, remember, they have two now. One's called Resilient. That's the one returning tonight. They've been up there for about six months. Crew One, which are four astronauts. Uh, I don't remember offhand their names. We will give that to you a little later on when it becomes relevant. But they are they are returning this evening. And toward the end of the other side of midnight, they will be splashing down. Again, this is nothing like the, quote, good old days. When we had the uh, Gemini and Mercury and um, uh, Apollo spacecraft who had to splash down somewhere in mid-ocean and you had, you know, half of the sixth fleet out looking for them with aircraft carriers with illustrious names like the Kearsarge, which was a major aircraft carrier in World War II, um, go out and pick them up. Uh, This is all very different. They are... Uh, splashing down tonight just off the coast of Panama City within uh, eyesight of the coast of uh, northern Florida there, the Panhandle. And uh, the pickup crew is a private recovery 
ship called the, um, I think it's the Good Navigator, and it's at night. This is the first splashdown of a crew returning from space, an American crew, uh, to have splashed down at night um, on Earth in 53 years. We haven't done this. I say we as a nation. For 53 years since the flight and return of Apollo 8, which was December of 1968. That was my baptism of fire with Walter Cronkite and the whole crew at CBS. And I must say, I've had some interesting uh, memories this afternoon as we were getting ready for the show. And I was figuring out how to kind of plug in what's going on. So we'll mute them for the time being, because for the next few hours, they're literally uh, cruising around the Earth getting in the right position to do the deorbit burn, which is about a um, um, three-minute burn of the uh, rocket engines on the spacecraft on Resilient, which will slow them down by a few hundred miles an hour, such that their trajectory then intersects the upper atmosphere about half a world away. And they re-enter for several minutes, six, seven minutes, and then they come down on parachutes and will land I am told, and the reason, you know, we'll, we'll get into this later on in the morning, but the reason they're doing this at night is not because they planned this, but because the weather had kind of planned this. So when we get to that part of this morning's uh, conversation, uh, we'll dip back into mission control and listen and see what it is they are in fact doing. Here. So they are currently reading questions with hashtags on Twitter. So um, we will... Proceed. Uh, I want to start this morning by uh, going through a few news items, and then we'll move into our space uh, conversations because we have a lot of interesting things going on simultaneously in space. We have um, uh, SpaceX returning its astronauts. Actually, they're NASA astronauts, but they're returning in the first commercial vehicle named Resilient that was commissioned by the U.S. government many, many years ago to supplement the shuttle and other modes of transportation, like renting very expensive seats from the Russians, which were, you know, I forget how many tens of millions of dollars per seat to fly up on a Soyuz and fly back down. So um, Musk is much cheaper and it's much more modern. It kind of looks really 21st century if you've ever seen the uh, Dragon spacecraft. Um, anyway, item number one on our news tonight, if you go to, if you're new to the show, uh, we do parallel images and videos and other things with this radio program, which stretches around the world. We're in 197 countries, so if you're listening to us, um, for instance, in India, uh, our heart goes out to you because you are having an extraordinarily bad time. Let me Let me swing into item number one. There is now research. Remember, I've been saying from the beginning, COVID-19 thing, that we are under attack. This is a either a message of a you know, almost draconian level, or it's an actual effort to do something geopolitically down here on Earth by means of a virus, which may, is one of the scenarios we've been looking at seriously, have been deliberately injected into the terrestrial biosphere from orbit. The bad guys in this scenario would be the breakaways, 
the Nazi civilization at the end of World War II took all their extraordinarily advanced R&D, particularly in the field of anti-gravity. This was the Gemmler-Tamler group there in the um, uh, eastern regions of Czechoslovakia and Germany, and um, they were doing some really remarkable research uh, coming off decades of rather secret research into the control of gravity, into uh, exotic uh, hyperdimensional energy sources, which would give you unlimited electricity. And so that all seemed to have come together. And one of the scenarios that we've been following for many, many years, uh, apropos of um, certain researchers who have proposed this based on a variety of, of circumstantial evidence, that there was, in fact, there is, in fact, a breakaway human civilization which took this technology and many many humans at the end of world war ii germans and fled to space and have been there developing a separate so-called breakaway civilization for the last 70 plus years well in this scenario at some point and now we touch on the work of people like joseph farrell and others of his ilk who've been looking at the Fourth Reich, the idea of a resurgence of the whole Hitlerian scenario that at the end of the war, uh, people like Bormann were carefully planning for the resurgence, the renaissance of the Reich, and it would be called the Fourth Reich. And they, of course, um, are, uh, uh, if, if, if this scenario obtained, and Keith, you need to look at my uh, one computer screen, something just happened and I lost I lost my working um, visual, so if you can go and kind of take a look and see what happened there. Anyway, the breakaway civilization idea is that we've had these separate development tracks between terrestrial civilization, no, not on the Mars machine, on the other machine, uh, separate development tracks for 70 plus years. And at some point, the Fourth Reich wants to resume what the Third Reich started, which is basically to take over the world. <clears throat> Under that scenario, given the fact that this planet bristles with all kinds of military hardware, that's, remember how uh, the Strategic Air Command used to say peace is our profession? Well, that's kind of a euphemism. Um, war is humans' profession in large countries, small countries, two-bit countries, major superpowers, war seems to be the first and last thing that we fund for the tune of billions and billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars spread around the world each and every year. Well, if you're seeking to invade and take over a planet in the beginning decades of the 21st century, the problem would be, well, how do you do it? Well, obviously, the way you would want to do it would be to start an offensive which initially looks like just bad luck you know pandemics come pandemics go viruses jump from species to species we've had several fits and starts over the last decade or so <clears throat> SARS being uh, uh, the most interesting and, and, and relevant in terms of this conversation so the scenario that I and a few others like Dr. Chandra Wickramasinghe have been exploring is that COVID-19 
is not produced, was not produced here on Earth. I know the Chinese have been indicted. Um, my feeling has been from the beginning that China was selected as the first victims because whatever they were doing before, um, if you imagine the breakaways have uh, designs on the planet, one of the ways that it would be helpful would be if you have terrestrial allies in terms of taking over the planet. And if the, uh, if the Chinese were the equivalent of the Germans in World War II in collaboration with, you know, let's say some nasty folks upstairs and they got out of line, one can again paint a scenario where COVID-19 appeared in Wuhan because it was a way of slapping down the Chinese for getting out of bounds, for getting out of range, or as the Intel guys like to say, for getting off the reservation. So what could the Chinese have done to incur the wrath of the breakaways if they were working together? Well, the Chinese have sent two missions, two unmanned missions to the moon. Chang-3 landed on the front side in Mari Imbrium. Um, Chang-4 landed for the first time of any space program in the modern era on the far side. Uh, and the Chinese have been publishing data, including some remarkable images showing, as I've been saying for many, many years, there are all kinds of ancient artifacts spread across the moon, including remnant domes, which are visible above the horizon. And the source of this imagery is no less than the um, uh, People's Liberation Army, the official mainstay of the Chinese Communist Party in terms of uh, keeping uh, the Chinese citizenry in check <clears throat> and presenting their um, you know, defensive posture to the world. So in terms of sourcing, we know that the imagery coming from the Chinese is accurate. We know that it compares one-to-one -one with what the Apollo astronauts photographed on film many, many decades ago. Um, and so if they were, shall we say, as an American idiom goes, telling tales out of school, um, the COVID-19 response could have been a way of basically bringing them back in line. The problem is that it, it got out of China, and that could be due in part to the structure of the Chinese uh, social system, uh, the kind of Chinese uh, state of mind, which is at all costs, you never want to lose face. So obviously the Chinese would do everything to cover up the fact that they were victims and not uh, the progenitors of this. And in so doing, they allowed it to escape to the rest of the world. It didn't close off the country, the flights, and so it spread around the world, which may have been, again, in part due to the design of whoever, you know, introduced this into the biosphere. The reason all of this is now current is because many countries have managed the COVID-19 situation far better than we have. We were atrocious in terms of handling the disease itself. We did literally for the last year everything wrong. I mean, everything from the lack of testing to the lack of proper you know, public education 
to the lack of, of proper medical stores. Everything that could have been done wrong in the face of a pandemic was done wrong. The one thing we're doing right now is this whole vaccination program, which, of course, is going to raise eyebrows from a lot of people that I know because they are dead set against vaccines. And that's a whole other program, which, again, we're working to to find the right people. It's not surprising that in this current political climate, credible virologists and immunologists uh, do not want to go into the public spotlight and put you know things on the record regarding their perceptions of how this disease should be treated. So we're having problems in lining up the appropriate guests, uh, but we're, we're, um, we are persevering and uh, we will report to you when we have assembled uh, those individuals and can provide the kind of quality show with decent and, and um, important content that the subject certainly deserves. But again, in, in, in lieu of that, in the, in the scenario that I have been, shall we say, um, proposing, that we are under attack, one of the very peculiar things is that many nations which had this under control, they had strict lockdown measures, they had quarantines, they eradicated it almost to where they had no cases or just a few cases. Suddenly, around the world, we are seeing flares and resurgences to where something like 400,000 people a day um, are coming down with with COVID-19 in India. And the death toll is approaching 5,000 people per day. They're having to cremate bodies in parking lots and families are having to, to get tickets and get in line so that their loved ones can be um, you know, properly disposed of because of course burial under these conditions is is just it's horrible it's i mean the conditions there have gone from grim to horrible to execrable in a very short period of time and they're not the only part of the world that is seeing this extraordinary resurgence after the disease was appropriately managed in the weeks and months before raising the question if someone upstairs is literally injecting new strains of the virus down here on earth, literally lobbing whatever containers into the atmosphere and it's spread like an aerosol through the air, whatever containment you try to practice on the planet will do you no good because if you're unaware that it's coming in from overhead, it's coming in from orbit, it's coming in from somewhere outside earth, from the solar system, as a directed attack, then everything you're doing is going to be for naught. And so far, I know of no official governments or research organizations or agencies or, you know, uh, medical institutions, anybody that's seriously looking at this as an attack from someone on all of us here on the planet. And of course, unless you understand that you're facing an enemy, you're not going to do anything to prevent the enemy from doing what it's doing. Um, that gets us, of course, into the terrain of what would be the point? What would be the purpose? Well, the purpose, I think, is to be seen in item number one. Remember, I've been saying 
for many, many months now that death is not the worst case scenario, as horrible as that sounds, from COVID-19. There are a huge group of people, estimates range from 10 to 30% of people who have come down with the virus, who do not, over weeks and months afterwards, really, truly recover. They're called uh, long haulers, and there are now serious medical attention by the establishment, by the mainstream, on what is behind this problem of the so-called COVID long haulers. And item number one, there is research now coming out of Texas, which says that COVID-19 has the capacity in laboratory tests and experiments to literally alter human genes. Remember, I've said from the beginning, the tragedy of death is compounded by the tragedy of those who survive but do not recover. And again, if you want to really hobble the enemy, the idea is not to kill the enemy. The idea is to make a huge portion of the enemy so sick, the rest of the enemy has to care of those who are alive but need medical attention And that, of course, results in very drastic and dire scenarios uh, down the road. I'm not saying any of this is true. I'm saying there's enough evidence, enough circumstantial evidence that we should be paying careful attention and set up research programs to determine if it's true. Because if that were the case, there are other things that could be done Uh, Obviously not here, but in space itself, there are such entities as the so-called secret space program. There's a new um, uh, military branch called the Space Force, which President Trump was able to get authorized through Congress over the space of uh, four years. There are some other things that could be brought to bear, but you have to know that you're under attack before any of those can be brought to bear on the situation. So that's item number one. Item number two, um, the Indians, because they're now in this dire, absolutely execrable situation, they are literally flagging mutations that they have found in amongst their population, which appear to be unique to any place in the world. Now, see, one of the vicious things about a biological attack is that there is such uncertainty as to the natural progression of the disease, like mutations. The way mutations work with viruses is that you have a whole lot of people, millions and millions of people, and they're transmitting the virus between themselves in uncontrolled ways. Well, each new person who is infected becomes basically a host in which the virus can mutate, can change genetically, to become more adapted, more virulent, more transmissible, more longer-lived, capable of replicating faster, all these things in the kind of Darwinian selection process. And there is no real way from outside to know whether the various variants, as they're now called, or the various genetic strains which have appeared are part of the natural, very, very rapid Um, pandemically accelerated mutation and evolution of the virus naturally 
or if someone actually in some laboratory somewhere <clears throat> has one from column A and one from column B, and they decide, okay, now's the time to introduce the next variant to get around the defenses, which, of course, the only defense we have are isolation, which, of course, is crippling economically. The so-called lockdowns have not been you know, well-received in, in major parts of the world, not the least of which is here in the U.S., but the other thing, the vaccines, is receiving extraordinary resistance, which now appears to be meeting the vaccine um, uh, promoters who are trying to develop this, I, I hate this term, this so-called herd immunity. It's population immunity. But the idea that we keep talking about herd immunity, it makes one think of cattle herds. And, you know, people can be programmed. We used to call them sheeple, et cetera, et cetera. So this this language, you know, the linguistics of the pandemic are as important to pay attention to, I believe, as the pandemic itself. Into this melange, we now have Indian scientists who, of course, have every encouragement you can possibly imagine to get to the bottom of what's going on and try to, you know, prevent the <laughs> ultimate collapse of the Indian society. And, of course, given now that we have air travel, what starts out in India does not stay in India. That's why beginning Tuesday, the United States is now curtailing all, all flights from India except for uh, U.S. nationals in an effort, again, to physically isolate these variants in India from the rest of the, uh, from the, rest of the population, starting, of course, with the U.S. population. Will all of these measures work? Well, only if we understand the true situation of the problem we are confronting. And remember, in any war, the first casualty is truth. So we have a large constituency claiming, even now, that COVID-19 is a hoax. It's a scamdemic. It's a plandemic. It's, it's uh, you know, completely designed to um, make Bill Gates another, you know, trillion dollars or something. It's in other words, all of the disinformation feeds into the lack of appropriate prophylactic measures to stop the disease itself, which, of course, could be emanating from sources upstairs that basically want to confuse governments and populations to such a degree that populations themselves will help spread the disease by even not doing simple things that will prevent the spread, like masks, like distancing, like uh, staying home, et cetera, et cetera. Because, of course, major parts of the planet can't stay home. They have to work. Um, we're extraordinarily fortunate to have large numbers of people in our society who've been able to work from home, but not everyone. And, of course, those people are incredibly disadvantaged, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, bottom line, if you want to take over the world, you want to soften it up in a way that is, um, shall we say, ultimately fatal, ultimately winds up with the planet giving in and asking you know, for relief. This is one of those horrible scenarios that I think should be taken very seriously. Well, we are at the bottom of the hour. Uh, we still have astronauts returning. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. 
When we come back, we have more news to cover. So don't touch that dial. Dr. Andrew Kaufman, natural healing consultant. Welcome to the other side of the news, where they're open to hearing the truth and take it seriously. The first thing you got to look at is the methods, like nothing else matters, because that's where they describe the experiment. So then you can decide if what you can conclude from the experiment, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's really, really important because you know, they make false claims and people don't understand how to use statistics and all these things could be misleading. What I noticed that they do now is they put the methods section at the very end. And in some papers, it's in a separate document that's like an addendum. So in other words, they just present the, the results and conclusions and an introduction section and nobody looks at the methods. But that's the most important thing, because if you don't know that, you don't actually know what they did. Because, you know, there's a lot of experimental design. And, uh, you know, some people can be very clever about it. Some can be very elegant about it. But there's also, like, many ways that things could be fudged. And there's books on this, right? Like one of Bill Gates' favorite books, How to Lie with Statistics. And, you know, you have the John Ioannidis article, which is one of the most highly cited papers where he says more than half of all published research is false. Right. So mm-hmm. but but how many scientists, when they go to read a paper, say there's a 50 percent chance that this article is false. So I better read it really carefully. Right. They don't do that. But all this clinical research, it's really just it's really marketing. It, that, that's what it is. It's not actual research. With this the vaccine trials, you know, it, it's just they basically designed it exactly perfectly to show what they could say. You know, that bogus 95% effectiveness. Uh, that's the, the relative risk reduction of having a test. And it's not even the overall risk reduction would be like 0.4%. But they describe it that way. It's a statistical trick where they could say 
And they also defined the outcome. And then they had to wait seven days after the vaccine. But all the people who got sick within that seven days didn't count. You know, all kinds of uh, tricks. They're, they're, they're experts at this. They know, yeah. they know what they're doing. And, and it's really hard to even figure out what they're doing. Track in SpaceX for into your cameras. Go ahead for interior cameras. When you're ready, request a go to uh, come back aboard with interior cameras. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. I said tonight was going to be kind of an improv. Uh, some of our folks are under the weather, so they're unable to be with us. Others uh, have certain, shall we say, um, emergencies they are dealing with, so they can't be with us until later in the, uh, in the show. So I'm kind of on an improv here, but fortunately, I think you can say fortunately, we have a lot of things to cover. So um, let, me, let me kind of uh, take up where I left off, okay? Item number three, um, this week, something very um, uh, long expected, but kind of tragic happened. We lost another uh, of the Apollo 11 astronauts, uh, Michael Collins, who was the command module pilot during Apollo 11, uh, died in, in his uh, uh, early 90s earlier this week. And their accolades coming in, of course, from all over the world. Michael Collins was a very interesting guy. He had he he had a military background. He was a, uh, a major general ultimately in the U.S. Air Force. But after his Apollo 11, uh, you know, step into history, um, few people remember Michael Collins because, of course, all the attention, as it should have been, was on uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Uh, Armstrong is gone. Now Collins is gone. That leaves um, uh, Buzz Aldrin as the only surviving member of the Apollo 11 crew, the first man, literally uh, the only man now left who walked on the moon um, in the first mission. But getting back to Collins, um, Collins was intriguing because even though he was a, a you know a kind of a protege of a military family and he became a you know, a flag officer himself, he really had more of the soul of a poet. If you read any of his books, I would commend his books because they're some of the most thoughtful and reflective and philosophical treatments of the journey of Apollo 11 of any of the, I don't know, hundreds of books that over the years I've read on the mission that I was very fortunate to have been with Cronkite and the CBS News crew to cover as it actually was happening, gosh, many, many, many years ago. How time, how time does fly. So if you want to read some background on uh, Michael Collins, um, item number three, which, of course, is the foreground to what's going on right tonight. In fact, let me go back to our air to ground and see if, in fact, we have... Uh, um, live air to ground from space. Okay, that is SpaceX. They're in Hawthorne, California. 
Um, as I said, toward the end of the show, somewhere between um, 12.30 my time and 1 o'clock my time, you can do the appropriate conversion uh, yourselves, um, they will be landing uh, off Panama City. Um, as I was saying before we went into the break, uh, the reason that they're doing this for the first time in 53 years at night is because there are two major fronts, one that just left and the other coming in, and the daytime winds, apparently in the two landing sites off Florida that are chosen, one off Panama City and the other one literally off Tampa, uh, the winds during the daytime and the wave heights were out of range. They were too extreme for a safe landing. But it turns out, as you may or may not have noticed, at night, winds, because of lack of solar heating, tend to die down. So the wave height right now in the Gulf of Mexico, literally just off the coast of Florida there at Panama City, the wave height is less than a foot. The ocean is like a sea of glass. And in another hour or two, um, maybe an hour, uh, there will be a quarter moon just after last quarter moon rising. So there will be moonlight. Uh, the boats, of course, the, the, uh, the recovery uh, fleet has uh, lights, powerful lights, searchlights, et cetera, et cetera. And the spacecraft has strobes uh, as it comes down on the parachutes. It has radio. It has locator beacons. So they practiced for this, and it was very interesting to to listen to the spokesman for uh, commercial crew out of NASA headquarters this afternoon talking about the fact that this was the best choice that they could make, which, of course, makes it reflect back 53 years to the night landing of Apollo 8 when I was working for the first time with Walter and the CBS crew. The longer one lives, the more history seems to, if not repeat itself, it certainly does seem to rhyme. Okay, item number five. I think we're up to number five. Um, speaking of SpaceX and Elon Musk and the return of the uh, Crew-1 tonight, uh, first commercial crew in the history of spaceflight being flown to and back from a U.S. NASA spacecraft, i.e. the International Space Station, uh, in a private vehicle. And so that's why you hear uh, in the background, you hear mission control from California there in Hawthorne the because mission. mission control is now spread between two states, two uh, separate parts of the continental United States, Houston, Texas, and Hawthorne, California. And uh, it, it's interesting that in, in, in light of all that's going on, the fact that uh, SpaceX and Elon Musk has demonstrated the prowess to loft and bring back safely commercial crew for the first time, there is a kind of a wrinkle which has developed. I, I, I told everyone you know, a couple of three weeks ago that NASA had decided as part of the Artemis program, the huge return to the moon by 2024 program that uh, President Trump initiated, they've decided, they've awarded the contract to develop the lunar lander uh, to Elon Musk, to SpaceX. Well, there were two other major companies in the running. 
One, a company out of West Virginia, uh, I forget the name of it, it's basically a military contractor. And the other is Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin. Jeff Bezos, of course, is one of, if not at this week, the wealthiest man in the world. You know, he created Amazon. Who doesn't know Amazon? He owns the Washington Post, among a whole bunch of other things that he owns is involved in. And Blue Origin is his space uh, organization, which has developed or has been developing several different stages of space flight from tourist flights up and down, kind of like uh, Alan Shepard many, many decades ago, except this will be, you know, like four or five passengers in a capsule that goes up 60 miles in an arc and then comes back down and lands um, uh, on the launch pad like it began. Uh, not true orbital flight, but it will give you zero gravity. It'll give you incredible views. They will be charging tourists. Um, they also have other programs. Uh, that one is called New Shepard. Then they have a rocket called New Glenn, which is going to be an orbital craft. And then they have uh, uh, one, I think they call it New Armstrong, named after Neil, of course, that will be taking um, uh, human uh, crews to and from the moon. Well, Bezos and Blue Origin were one of the three companies that NASA had in the final run to award the contract to develop the lander, the lunar lander for the big Artemis uh, official U.S. government NASA program to return astronauts to the moon by 2024. And the winner of that contest uh, was SpaceX. Well, the other two companies now, the the uh, defense supplier that I can't remember the name of, and uh, Blue Origin, Bezos Company, they have both uh, um, sued NASA legally in court to prevent them from executing the contract with Musk so that uh, Musk has now had to halt lunar lander work pending these contract challenges. Again, these other companies have flown and demonstrated nothing in space. Not quite sure about the West Virginia company. They may have been a subcontractor on some place that actually made it to orbit, but certainly Bezos has not done anything in space. <clears throat> and yet they are suing the provider who has not only developed a manned space flight system, the Dragon spacecraft, which has successfully now sent, you know, a crew to the station, kept them there six months, and literally, as we talk tonight, is in the process of bringing them home. But they also have developed this extraordinary, reusable, landable, first-stage rocket technology, which is drastically cutting the price of conventional rocket access to and from space, making it possible for the commercial democratization of space I mean, this is what Musk has done. This is what SpaceX has done. And when NASA awarded him the contract to do this on a bigger scale for the Artemis program, suddenly his competitors are suing him in court because, of course, that's the way the legal system these days works. You know, meritocracy, be damned. Anyway, that will all sort itself out. But I just thought it was kind of interesting as a backstory to what's going on tonight with the return of the astronauts. Uh, from the space station, and there is uh, SpaceX headquarters in Hawthorne, 
uh, talking to its audience, narrating the ultimate return of the uh, uh, Crew Dragon uh, crew, the four astronauts coming back tonight um, to Earth to its worldwide audience through both NASA television as well as through its own uh, web resources. Which brings us to item number six. While all this has been going on, the Chinese kind of quietly launched on a huge rocket, uh, Long March 6 or whatever it is, the core module of what's going to be a uh, 10-rocket launch privately run by the Chinese space station in competition with the International Space Station, which, of course, has Russian participation, European participation, and was built and designed by the United States many, many, uh, well, over 20 years ago. Um, Why are the Chinese putting up their own space station? Because some harebrained scheme hatched in the Congress, kind of like what happened after John Kennedy was killed and his you know, a proposal of a collaboration between the Soviet Union and the United States in the Apollo program was deep sixed in the Congress by deliberate legislation that prevented us from cooperating with the Russians back then. Well, the same very uh, short-sighted bureaucrats in the Congress have done the same thing with the Chinese. We are we are forbidden by law. NASA is forbidden by law from collaborating with the Chinese government. So what do the Chinese do? Since they want to become the only reigning superpower on the planet, they have put together their own uh, space program. They've landed on the moon now with unmanned spacecraft twice, once on the front side, once on the far side. Uh, And just a few days ago, they lofted the core module of what's going to be their own uh, space station called Heavenly Harmony. I kind of like the way the Chinese named their missions. Remember the mission which is currently orbiting Mars tonight, waiting to land, waiting, waiting, waiting. We don't know what for. I have some suspicions, which we'll get into uh, later in the morning. But uh, they call that um, questioning heaven or questions of heaven. And the space station is going to be called Heavenly Harmony. I wonder if they're going to invite international participation like the ISIS station has done. Um, With a name like Harmony, uh, could they not? Well, one does not know. Now, the the weird part about this, this mission that was launched just last week, successfully putting the core module of the Chinese um, Heavenly Harmony space station in orbit, is that the rocket, if you go to look at my number six, in radio with pictures, that rocket, it's huge. Unfortunately, it also made it into orbit along with the core module of the space station. And, you know, in deference to Newton, what goes up, if it's not kept up in low Earth orbit, eventually will come down. And this rocket is big enough, has enough mass, that all of it may not vaporize or burn up on reentry, in which case um, some pieces of the Chinese rocket that launched their core space station module could survive entry and actually impact the Earth. It's one of those good news, bad news things. 
The good news is most of the earth is covered by water, so the odds are overwhelmingly it's going to splash down if any pieces survive reentry in the ocean. The bad news is it's so massive that some pieces will survive, we are told, just like Skylab many decades ago, um, will survive entry into the atmosphere and can reach the ground. And if it falls on a major city, well, uh, that could be, um, I could give someone a bad hair day. What I find is peculiar, unlike uh, SpaceX and Musk, who with their second stage of the Falcon 9 rocket, remember they recovered now the first stage, landed in either back at the Cape or on a drone ship somewhere in the Atlantic. The second stage would do the same thing uh, as the Chinese rocket is doing, except Musk has put in place in the second stage a um, computer program that allows them to burn one of the engines so that it slows down just enough so they can have a controlled entry uh, somewhere in the South Pacific or North Pacific or the Atlantic or wherever. And so it can be safely re-entered without endangering anybody on land or in more populated parts of the uh, planet. Not so for this major Chinese launch that occurred just a couple of days ago. I'm kind of wondering why, given how meticulous the Chinese are about their space program, they did not put in um, a, a control factor that will allow them to burn the fuel remaining on board. Because after these launches, there's always fuel remaining. You never drain the tanks dry. And it doesn't take very much of a nudge with the engines on this rocket uh, to slow it down by you know, a few hundred miles an hour compared to its orbital velocity of something like 17,500 miles per hour to have it make a controlled reentry. And again, is this a deficiency in the design of the system or is this just the fact that that system is not working on this first launch of the core of the uh, Chinese space station? And given that China is a closed society, um, I have no way of knowing tonight, and I'm not sure that even the experts or in the intel community know whether this was just an accident or this is part of a uh, kind of a design flaw that they realize that if they're going to have 10 launches of 10 massive rockets to put up the mass of their space station, they need a way to control the reentry of the rocket once its job is done. Speaking of impacts, Something else took place this week, uh, which was kind of curious. NASA ran, along with some international partners, a simulation of an asteroid impact on Earth, on Europe. And they concluded at the end of the simulation that they had no way of stopping the rock before it impacted the Earth, causing the detonation of the equivalent of a major thermonuclear explosion given the size of their uh, simulated asteroid in this scenario. And that, of course, raises all kinds of very intriguing questions. That's item number seven. Go read that carefully because the time frame they had projected was that one of the telescopes that's currently looking you know, into space like PanStars or some of the other uh, survey telescopes picked up this object 
six months before impact, and as they refined the orbit, uh, it went from being possible to probable to being a certainty. But at the end of the simulation, um, we are told that they concluded that six months was not enough time to basically prepare a launch to go out and intercept this asteroid and do something to it, either destroy it, which is very hard. Even with nukes, it's very hard because you don't want to shatter it because then one object becomes, you know, dozens of objects and you wind up with that um, uh, scenario depicted in uh, that very good film, Deep Impact. Um, I would commend that to your attention. Your copious spare time, go take a look. Uh, that's the scenario you want to avoid, which is asteroid splitting or cometary nuclei splitting and becoming, uh, you know, multi-warhead uh, scenarios as opposed to one object entering. Um, they tried other deflection methods. The main problem was they couldn't get admission together in time in six months. One wonders why they didn't in their scenario build in a factor where a spacecraft was prepared waiting to go in case it just needed a rocket. And of course, you know where I'm going to say next. The one person they did not have in their scenario was a guy named Musk. Because I will bet dollars to Navy beans that if you gave this program to Musk and his geniuses there in Hawthorne, if they only had six months warning, they could devise a system that would launch a private mission to go out there and do something to deflect this asteroid um, in various creative ways that bureaucracies like NASA and maybe ESA did not consider. Now, I'm saying this without having seen all the documents from the scenario, from the simulation. So if I'm speaking out of turn, uh, I will apologize you know, beforehand. But I have a feeling that what Musk is demonstrating tonight which is literally the um, entry of the first commercial crew in the modern history of spaceflight, not on a NASA-controlled spacecraft, but literally one controlled by a private commercial contractor like American Airlines or TWA or Pan American flying astronauts to and from the space station, except in this case, it's a company called SpaceX. I guarantee you that Musk given that he has demonstrated time and time again out-of-the-box thinking an extraordinarily rapid turnaround compared to NASA. I mean, how long has NASA been working on the Artemis program compared to Musk working on Starship? And we're looking now, after just a year or two, of the first potential Starship in orbit from SpaceX in July. So, you know, as a harbinger of things to come, Private enterprise, and that's a nice ring to it, enterprise. Private enterprise is hands down the way to go because you have the inculcation of creativity and the streamlining of bureaucracy because of something called the bottom line. Anyway, um, i tell you what, um, I've almost used up now an hour <laughs> going through these various things. I think our various participants are going to be uh, uh, capable of uh, joining us at the top of the hour. Uh, those folks that uh, we've invited to be part of this 
an interesting new segment on what's going on on Mars, discovering, you know, new evidence of the so-called crystal cities of Barsoom. We'll explain all that. But what I want to do is I want you to point, point you now to item number eight, because as you know, as part of the NASA Perseverance mission, it carried to Mars this little four-pound helicopter called Ingenuity. And there has been a major change in the status of Ingenuity in the last couple of days. Remember, the original plan was that Ingenuity, we were told over and over and over again, it's going to just be a tech demonstrator. It's not a serious scientific tool. It carries no scientific instruments. It's a tech demo. It's a tech demonstrator. We want to see if we can fly a rotorcraft on Mars. Remember, Mars is so hard to fly on because it's got, you know, one hundredth the atmospheric pressure of the Earth, and you have to design it to be totally autonomous because of the time lag between Earth and Mars. You can't run it, you know, with a joystick. It's all got to be done by onboard computer. So they put the most sophisticated, you know, iPhone computer they could find into Ingenuity, which is something like 100 times uh, more competent and faster than anything else that NASA's flying in the way of spacecraft computers. It's capable of doing corrections at something like 500 times per second. So um, with that in mind, take a look at number eight, because number eight is the successful fourth flight of Ingenuity, which took place a couple days ago. And this is a video created by one of the very uh, uh, competent citizen scientists over at uh, unmannedspaceflight.com. Uh, it's the compressed video from the mass cam and the nav cams on uh, perseverance of the flight of Ingenuity, the longest flight to date lasted about two minutes when we come back we're going to talk about times and atmospheres and all that and it also went out and back almost a thousand feet which is really interesting because um that distance flying on a planet where the atmosphere is so thin that literally nothing should be able to fly is in and of itself a noteworthy historical achievement. So at number eight, there's the video. Take a look while we're going into our top of the hour break. And when we come back, we will be joined by other members of the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team and guests because we have a lot to talk about in terms of discovering, confirming, the existence of an ancient series of now long-lost civilizations on the planet Mars. And the Ingenuity helicopter, it turns out, is going to play a major, almost starring role. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. This Saturday night, May 1st, on the other side of midnight. Well, it's time to introduce my guests. Uh, Andrew Curry, of course, is our resident illustrator and artist. He has a degree in art therapy, and he works on commercials and movies. And I've had him this week doing some sketches. I'm not quite sure whether they're uh, available or not, but we can certainly talk about what will be produced in the next show when we do all this in, you know, one week from tonight. Um, Andrew, are you there? Yes, I am, Richard. Greetings from <laughs> Greetings. Canada. Ah, yes. You know, I, I, I shouldn't tell tales out of school, but, you know, Andrew got a last-minute call from one of his clients who had an emergency, emergency, emergency. I've got to have this day before yesterday. So he's been working, literally sketching, while listening to the show, trying to get this out of the way so he can join us for the next two hours. And I take it you were successful? Yeah, I just got an email from my director, and he said, looks great, exclamation mark. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> so, yeah, folks, um, Richard, Richard wasn't kidding when he said we're, we're um, trying to pull the pieces together. We had a lot of things and, you know, stapled in. And you know how staples are sometimes they pop out mm. when you try to put them on the on the board. So now, Richard, um, I don't know. Uh, OK, just full disclosure here, folks, there's a the right side of the butte. Richard, you should probably set this up and I, I'm going to explain what I've done because I did get a chance to do one little illustration. And when you get talking, I might see if I can post it for the third hour. But can you explain that butte? The, the one that okay um, well before we do that let me introduce okay. Ruggiero who is yes. our colleague from uh, across the pond in Britain and uh, he has a whole bunch of stuff tonight Ruggiero is kind of um, how could I describe him the way Ruggiero kind of joined this team is that he has a medical background he has a BSc honors degree in podiatric medicine uh, he's in his working professional life he undertakes all aspects of uh, human movement and musculoskeletal medicine, including gait re-education and uh, orthotic prescriptions. I, I kind of roped him into this when I sent him the picture of the uh, so-called femur on Mars, the Curiosity rover many, many years ago as part of its synoptic photography of everything in Gale Crater came across this little area where the ground appears to be disturbed and basically lying 
mostly on the surface with a little bit of dust and sand covering one side of it is this thing that looks like a human femur. So that was how I hooked Ruggiero. Now, of course, he's looking at all these interesting aspects of the imagery coming from Mars, and uh, um, he's finding some intriguing patterns that uh, the rest of us have not had time to find. So, Ruggiero, welcome back to the other side of midnight. Good, uh, good morning, good evening. <laughs> it's very early there in Britain, right? It is. Yeah, I've been up since half past four this morning. Oh, my God. <laughs> the coffee's doing me well. The coffee's doing me well. Oh, you, um, mean, you mean it's not Earl Grey? Not Earl Grey today, Richard. That was, I saved that one for the last, for the last show. Nice <laughs> <laughs> uh, strong mocha I made myself, actually, this morning with a bit of cardamom. So that, that went down well. Um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for that generous introduction. I want to give a little thank you to you as well um, for this uh, historic evening, for uh, all the work you've done and the dedication you, you, you know, to, the, uh, to the industry over the years. Uh, you know, I think you've done fantastic research for, uh, for space and for science. I'd just like to, like to give you that, Richard. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'll tell you what, let me, let me uh, go back to Andrew because I, I want to kick this off with what's going on in Jezero Crater, because the more we look, the more we're finding. Andrew, you wanted me to kind of lay the context for this particular structure we're going to talk about tonight in Jezero? Yeah, I, please do, because um, I have a little something um, that I can share, you know, right off the bat, or we can talk about it later. Um, but, you know, you basically wanted me to look at a whole, you know, Cliffside. Well, yeah, let me, let me, let me kind of, you know, and yeah. because Ron can't be with us tonight, he is unfortunately Ron Gerbron, who had some really interesting things to lay out. And we have his images, you know, kind of like the ghost of Christmas to come. Um, but we don't have Ron because Ron is definitely, definitely under the weather. And, you know, he's one of these guys that, you know, manages to do anything almost regardless of his personal circumstance or his health. Uh, Ron is really under the weather tonight, so he can't be with us. Fortunately, we have his items. So if you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's banner, uh, which says uh, as part of uh, the setup that I was envisioning when we kind of planned tonight, uh, rediscovering the ancient crystal cities of Barsoom and subsumed under that title is the idea we were going to be talking about glass, a lot of glass we found all over Mars. Ron has found all kinds of examples of glass all over the planet. Unfortunately, he can't be with us tonight to lay out all the glass he's found all over Mars, which of course uh, bespeaks very eloquently of two things. One is you don't get glass on this scale naturally. Uh, you certainly don't get prismatic refractions, rainbows, you know, splattered all over the landscape from any natural silica process that I've ever been aware of in geology. You only get it from manufactured, you know, prisms or cut glass where you have sharp corners and beveled edges and prismatic differential refraction, which bends the light, you know, prismatically between the short wavelengths in the blue and the long wavelengths in the red. So if you see a prism on another planet, you can be pretty sure it's caused by something incredibly transparent. B, it's probably glass. And C, it had to have been made by somebody 
because this amount of different examples of the glass all over Mars, as Ron has been carefully uh, compiling for many, many years, simply cannot exist in a vacuum, pun intended. It had to have been put there by someone, and the someone, of course, now that we've discovered this extraordinarily still extant uh, ancient riddled shattered dome over Gezero, it tells us that in the end stages of the civilization era on Mars before the inhabitants had to migrate to the only other planet in the solar system where they could live, which is here, it tells us that Martian civilization went through various stages, winding up with the domes as the last stage before they had to abandon Mars uh, to, to itself. So as part of this dissection of um, what's going on in terms of the civilization or civilizations that lived in Yezero, right after landing, um, we found this extraordinary uh, set of features in Yezero. And the way you find them is you go to the other side of midnight.com, you click on tonight's banner, rediscovering the ancient crystal cities of Barsoom. That takes you to the guest page. And under the guest banner at the top, it, you'll see fast links to me, to Ron, to Timothy, to Andrew, to Ruggiero. Click on Ron's items. That takes you down. Look at item number two. This is a really magnificent um, enhancement that Ron has done of one of the better Perseverance uh, mass cam uh, zoomed images of this structure that we call the temple because just looking at it, it had a feel to me as not just a natural mesa, as something that had been, shall we say, modified because there are right angles, there are suggestions of gargoyles, of faces. There appear to be two components. When you look at the orbital imagery of this object from space, from MRO, from Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, it, there are two distinct sections. There's an angular geometric section to the west. There's a round section looking like basically a roundhouse, like uh, uh, many, many years ago when my family and I were you know, doing uh, commercial music, we used to play at an um, uh, inn in New Hampshire called the Roundhouse because it was basically a big round structure in which you know, there were bars and restaurants and you know, it, it, was, it was round. We, in fact, have a, um, a, a state house here in New Mexico in Santa Fe where the state legislature meets, and it's called the Roundhouse. It's a very large, round building with a flat roof, but the sides are round, and it looks like, you know, a sliced-off section of a can of Coke sitting there in, in Santa Fe. I think it's painted bright yellow, uh, not Coke colors. But anyway, on Mars, in Yezero, to the west of where Perseverance landed, a couple of miles away beyond some ridges, there is this remarkable, I just kind of felt, was a special structure to the inhabitants. And it turns out now that that intuition was correct. Because when you, when you look at the best imagery taken of this structure, particularly 
<clears throat> of the round sides of the structure to the northeast, if you're looking straight down on satellite imagery from, let's say, MRO, there appear to be these huge vertical panels that initially they look like they're just, you know, like stratified geological layers of rock. But when you look at them a second and a third time, particularly the ones on the upper right-hand side, on the protected north and northeast side of this rounded, uh, extraordinarily symmetrical building, which is roughly 300 or so feet across and, you know, tens of, of maybe 100 feet high, <clears throat> it looks as if these were panels of some incredible design work of art, a lot of which has now been eroded and fallen away, talus slope, which is at the base. Again, we should be looking at item number two in Ron's uh, radio pictures. But on the northeastern side, um, if you zoom in, which you can by clicking, um, well, you can't click this image. It's as large as it needs to be. But we have closer uh, images that I think is where um, Andrew is going to take us. You find the most remarkable, uh, well, what do we find, Andrew? Well, I see repeatedly, again, Richard, um, sculpted faces. Uh, like you say, there there might even be a gargoyle there. I see a giant cat. <laughs> That's the one I focused on. And in fact, I, I'm going to uh, throw myself at the mercy of the court, which is Cynthia in the background. <laughs> and I sent her my link, and I'm hoping she can post it so we can have a peek at it. But Richard, there's a whole... Um, Panaflay of, or I don't know how you say that word, but there's a whole series of, of faces there. And again, I, I know in nature, we can occasionally get, you know, the, the face in the hills, the old man in the hills, that kind of idea. But when you get repeated symmetry, where uh, in, in the case of, of a lot of these faces that I think we're seeing in these panels that you're describing, is literally, you're right, they're in panels, they're in frames. <laughs> or they're at least in um, – not framed as in like a, in, in a gallery, but framed in specific spots. They, there's even sometimes a series of them in a row. Now, if Keith Laney has often said, and I've said repeatedly, if nature can do that on its own, and, you know, ostensibly, I guess it could at some point. But if it does, then no artist <laughs> anywhere ever needs to lift a chisel or paint a picture because nature does it really well. And, and so I guess, your you know, director tonight should have sent his uh, congratulations with exclamation point to nature as opposed to you. Well, it might take a, a little longer to get the job done, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we are little forces of nature, Richard, each one of us, right? Well, that and, gets very philosophical very, very quickly. Do we have an image of a sketch of any of this? Um. Well, I said to think I'm not. She might be. She might be posting it pretty soon. Okay. But, um, if yes, it, if, it, if it is, I'm, I'm looking at your items. I oh, see okay. one, two, three, four items, and the way you find these under the banner at the top of the guest page, click on Andrew. Fast links to items for Andrew. That will take you to his section of the website tonight. Um, but I'm not sure I see. 
anything representing the friezes on no, the not temple. Yet. Okay, okay. Yeah, All not right. quite yet. Okay. But, yeah. So um, one of the things that I noticed, and as you know, I sent around, you know, this this super cam mosaic that um, what, what's so interesting, I'm, I'm kind of interrupting myself because we've noticed that JPL, the crowd pursuing this mission, almost appear, and I know this sounds incredibly self-centered, but they appear to be listening to the conversation on this show. Yeah. Because we talk about the dome, and suddenly, in the panoply of perseverance imaging, we have hundreds of images taken of the entire sky by the best camera on the spacecraft or the rover, and they just appear out of nowhere, like, wouldn't it be a good idea to maybe photograph the whole sky? And that's an incredible mission requirement because you've got limitations of personnel, distance, bandwidth, the difference of time synchronization between Mars time and Earth time, because two planets don't rotate in exactly the same synchronization. The, the, the Mars day is 39 minutes, twice 19.5, longer. So there's this synchronization problem. Anyway, midst of all this, suddenly within a couple of days of one of the shows we did on the dome, NASA takes the Perseverance rover and photographs the whole damn dome. And uh, that's one of my items uh, later on in, in my presentation for tonight. By the same token, um, we were kind of musing out loud last weekend that it was such a shame that they were going to just abandon little ingenuity. They were going to do five flights. Uh, Mimi Ung, who is the uh, uh, program manager, said they were going to test on the fifth flight uh, ingenuity to destruction, which, of course, you know, kind of like, ah, like fingernails on a blackboard. Why would you take an $85 million piece of technology to Mars and then test it to destruction? What could you learn by destroying it if it's worked perfectly every time you've flown it? Well, a whole couple of days ago, NASA called a press conference, of course, completely lousing up their NASA TV schedule. And again, and they announced that they have now assigned Ingenuity to a second mission, which is an operational demo of how a rover mission could use aerial assets, the helicopter with its cameras, to go ahead as a scout, <clears throat> as an Amuamua, you know, using the Hawaiian here, to scout the terrain ahead of Perseverance and to bring back and send back that can then be turned by the incredible imaging people at JPL into three-dimensional maps and stereo plots. And of course, all of this, I have a feeling, was waiting for them to use the right time to announce it. But the fact is that they announced this change from destroy ingenuity to use ingenuity because it's worked so successfully. They only announced it a couple of days ago and this, again, was four or five days after we had said, why don't they do this in our last show on Perseverance last weekend? So it's kind of like JPL is responding to us, not by any emails or overt acknowledgement that anything we're saying on the show has any worthwhile value at all, but they appear to be doing the things we're recommending after we recommend them, and frankly, that's fine. 
because this asset, this perseverance ingenuity duo, two little robots working together on another world, talking to each other, sharing data, collaborating. I mean, if, if you're doing a tech demo and you're seriously considering including, you know, flying craft, rotor craft on future missions to Mars and maybe elsewhere in the solar system where there's an atmosphere, then why would you not, if it's still working, move it from a technical test into an operational management test, which is how does it work in terms of the science program of the rover? How do you integrate its activities and its constraints, engineering, temperature, et cetera, et cetera, into the science profile of drilling and photographing and digging and caching samples and boldly going where no rover has gone before? Well, they came up with the perfect solution. They're doing it kind of timidly. They said, well, we're only going to test it for 30 more days. You know, instead of saying we're going to run her until she, she drops, because I'm going to tell you they're going to find an extraordinarily useful function that they can test now almost free because they've already brought her along. She's already there. She's working perfectly. And if you go to my uh, uh, number eight, there's the video of her working perfectly. And, of course, the ultimate dream will be that um, uh, they're able to fly when they move the rover around, Andrew, into the um, part of Jezero, which is at the base of the Temple uh, Butte or Kodiak yeah. Temple, they'll be able to use Perseverance to get real close-ups of these freezes. Now, they may not show us, although yeah. by that time, that's going to be probably like a year from now. Uh, the politics, the geopolitics, what the Chinese are doing, all that will have sorted itself out. And we may be in an incredible um, new era of disclosure of all of this stuff. So instead of running a rogue archaeological mission, you're kind of piggybacking on NASA's official, well, we're just looking for microbial fossils. Remember, guys, we're just looking for fossils. That's all we're looking for, little tiny, tiny things in the ground. That's all we're looking for. That's why we took the radar with us. Remember, they have a ground-penetrating radar on the rover. How useful is a damn radar on a mission landing on a, on a lake bed where the sediments beneath you can be literally thousands of feet deep? But if you're doing secret archaeology – anyway, I've gone on long enough. Is that enough setup for the temple? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's still to be posted, but we'll, we'll get there. Uh, Richard, you brought up a couple of good points. What about the photography or the pictures being taken by Ingenuity? We were you know, um, going back and forth a little bit this early this week saying that some of those images were kind of poor. Can you explain that to the audience? Because they looked – I mean there was that uh, shot of Perseverance, and it was like a big announcement earlier this week by NASA like, hey, we got a picture of our rover. We've never had an angle like that, which is very, very true. But, it, but the imagery was terrible. Are the cameras that bad? Well, there, there are only two cameras on Ingenuity. One is a black and white camera. In fact, uh, if you go back to my items, which I would recommend you do, you know, when you listen to this show, you got to be flexible, okay? 
and you click on fast items that takes you on the guest page down to my items you want to take a look at item number 10 are you looking andrew yeah 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 isn't that astonishing yeah that is the black and white so-called crude navigation camera that's in the belly of that little mylar box that's hung under the rotors of, of ingenuity between the four struts of the landing gear. That is the a gif of the shadow in the black and white navigation camera showing you kind of what you would see if you were sitting in ingenuity flying across the surface because those are the computer images that go to the to the in ingenuity computer memory to compare against other pictures that lets it navigate to within inches uh, across the surface of Mars, all without GPS, all without a sextant, all without star sights, all without knowing where the sun is. This is, you know, basically look down camera. The other camera, and I uh, didn't actually put up the Percy picture, is a color camera, which is pointed out the side of that little electronic Mylar covered box at an angle of about 22 degrees to the surface. So it's looking kind of slantwise down. Yeah. And as the helicopter flies, that color camera, as they rotate and pivot, as they're hovering, it can take panoramas. It can take shots in a given direction, a sequence of shots. They've only taken a few. And on one of those, I think on flight three, in the left-hand corner, in the upper left-hand corner, because these are wide-angle frames, yeah. uh, they, they managed to capture Perseverance sitting, you know, 300 feet away, and then a little bit above it was the horizon with the uh, blue sky. And I, I looked at these images, and the color camera compared to the cameras on the rover is really bad. I mean, it's yeah. filled with what we call noise. It looks like salt and pepper. It looks like you'd taken a color photograph and then you dumped a whole bunch of salt and pepper on it and then rephotographed it again and posted that photograph of the image that was good and is now bad because it's filled with all kinds little bright and dark specks. Well, that's noise. So the question that Ron and I were discussing up until he had his um, you know, problem with illness tonight have been discussing for the last several days is, is this noise just an unwanted side effect of putting the camera in the helicopter in a way that did not test for all possible sources of noise, which I kept saying over and over again, NASA never does anything without 15,000 different tests. Nothing ever flies unless it's tested and tested and then tested again and again and again. So then the other question I had was, well, have they been taking the color pictures in such a way that they inject noise into them on the ground when the pictures come down before they're published because they don't want people to think that this is a stunningly yeah. active instrument on a helicopter that could be used. Remember, if it's a tech demo, just a tech demo, just a disposable tech demo, we're going to test the destruction at the last flight. So was it part of the gestalt, the deliberate PR branding of this as an amateurish toy as opposed to a sophisticated companion instrument 
to the overall Perseverance mission. And now that they politically made that decision, my question is, are the next color images from this camera suddenly going to be much, much, much better? Well, one thing's for certain, Richard. What's becoming very clear is our break. Oh, my God. Thank you. I'm so glad somebody's paying attention. <laughs> uh, when you're trying to do everything yourself. Yes, we are definitely uh, in the middle of a break. I need to pick up a couple of things here. Uh, when we come back, we're going to uh, uh, bring in Rogero and ask for some of his comments, uh, in particular, some of the things that I said in the first hour. But you are all on the other side of midnight. My guests this morning so far are Andrew Curry and Rogero Carla, and we are on the other side of midnight. Don't touch that dial. We shall return. Anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Saturday night, May 1st, 2021. We're talking about inhabitation of Mars by previous civilization or civilizations of which we know almost nothing except our really, really good surmise based on a whole bunch of circumstantial evidence is we as them and they as us. And at the end of the inhabitable epoch of this amazing planet, as the environment was deteriorating more and more and more, 
and the glass domes could not keep civilization alive. Like that group of Martians in the H.G. Wells tale, looking with envious eyes across the darkness to the blue-green planet Earth, our great-great-great-great ancestors were forced to come here. And that's a whole other story. So back to Mars. Uh, Ruggiero, I'm, I want to bring you in now, and I mispronounced your name. It's Kalo. You know, there are times when in the middle of uh, improvising, you uh, don't get everything right. So do you have some thoughts on any of the stuff that we've been talking about so far? And if not, what would you like to uh, regale us with tonight? Uh, I sure do. Firstly, uh, I'm interested in your, your book, image number eight, with the flight. Okay. And um, what's really uh, cool about it is the you've got the dome features in the background again, uh, which we're seeing consistently on on all the um, the, the features from uh, pictures from Jezero. So uh, it lines up with the drawings that Tim has done on, on previous shows. Um, but I, I wanted to go on to my items if we're able to click on to them. Yeah, by all means. So let me just get to my own page. Okay, let me let me um, tell folks how to get there. Go to the other side of midnight.com. Uh, click on tonight's banner, the ancient crystal cities of Barsoom. That will take you to the guest page, where you will find at the top another banner, and underneath you'll see guest the fast links. Click on Ruggiero. He's at the end of the line there. R U G G E R O. That takes you directly to your items. What do you want to show us? I want to show us the uh, stunning Vernal Memorial Gardens, which is uh, from Keith Laney's Gigapan. So I've spent quite a lot of time working on this feature. And um, the, it's got this intriguing lineup of um, quite symmetrical mounds. They remind me of the earth mounds we see in uh, my hometown of Dorset. So Tim Saunders would be quite familiar with that. Uh, so this would be 1A, B, and C? Uh, that's right, yeah. Okay, so these are stills taken from uh, Lanyard Gigapan, which is number one. Yeah, and if you, if anyone wants to actually jump on to uh, Keith Laney's Gigapan, which I advise they do, they can do their own measure. It's got two features. It's got one which is a, a length measure and the other an area measure. Of, um, so you can get your, your readings of each of the mounts. In that way. Unfortunately, you can't yet do a 3D. Now, uh, tell me this. Why is this called the Vernal Memorial Gardens? It's certainly not in Yezero. It's somewhere else on Mars. But did did uh, Keith name this? I think that would be Keith that's, that, that's named that. So I'll have to do some more research. Do we on know it. why? I don't. I don't. Um, that, Andrew, you're, you also made a... We had a discussion about this before. Have you got any idea why he might have named this Vernal Memorial Gardens? No, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, we have our speculation what it is, but we, mm. I don't know. I actually don't know. Uh, mm. sure what, well, really. Keith, if you're listening, call in and you can tell us why you called. I have no idea what Vernal Memorial Gardens um, means. Uh, I, I, I'm really clueless. I am completely... 
up in the air. I, I can't imagine the associations. Memorial and gardens are kind of the anyway. Be that as it may, let's let's go to number one A because what you're obviously singling out, Ruggiero, is a striking, extraordinary uh, array of features that are fairly big, but they're organized on another part of Mars. Uh, without Keith, I don't know where we're, where we're looking, but obviously this is from MRO imagery, or maybe it's uh, Malin's context imager on the MRO spacecraft. But these things are very, very, very British. They are. They remind me of our, our hill mounds at home. So I was driving across um, West Dorset. Have you been there when you've been on your travels to the UK? Yes, briefly. So if you ever come over, I'd love to get you in a car and drive you to all my favourite spots so you can actually take in the, the magnificence of our, of our, our homeland that looks like it's almost been sculpted out the ground. Well, remember, so, when we looked at Avebury many, many years ago, we discovered that Avebury seems to be a replication at scale to the eastern, um, yeah, the eastern end of Sidonia, the crater cliff region. Yeah, it, it looks exact. I've studied that. And um, there's another image which uh, we've got a whole show on this. When um, I sent a Kinfia uh, image of Maiden Castle, do you remember that? Oh Be- yes, yes, yes. <laughs> which is quite symbolic of the uh, the, the man's anatomy. Um, and Kempfia sent me black, back a black and white of the same image feature on Mars, which I found totally compelling. So this this whole landscape kind of reminds me, in in a way, of potential earthworks that uh, have also been um, sorry, the earthworks have been harnessed around the natural formations of the land itself. So when we come back just a bit to the science of what I'm seeing, when I spoke to Holgar a few weeks back, he thinks that the formations could have been caused by a, like a plasma, plasma strike onto the surface of Mars. But when I look at, I'm not, and I'm not discounting that nature can't like crystalline structures because it does. We see it all over Dorset in the rocks, you know, they, they can look quite, man-made even though they're not so i'm talking about single rock formations or the geological lines that we see within the jurassic coast but what i'm seeing here is quite uh, precise um measurements a between each feature and b with the length of each feature and then we're seeing um prism prismatic form uh, within feature to feature, which I've highlighted along each line. But um, so what initially jumped out at me at this Vernal Memorial Gardens is the fact it looked like it was kind of telling a story in, in mathematics and line. And Andrew make it, made a beautiful point um, that he thinks that it's got some kind of a harmonic. And I said, I thought it looked like the original um, sort of polyphonic uh, grids that make the first uh, recorded sound. Hmm. Does, that, does that make sense? Did yes, yes, of course. And remember, we're dealing with a physics which mm. is totally about harmony. Mm. You know, the old, the old uh, cliche, as above, so below. <clears throat> yep. If yep, you yep, yep. if if you take and separate that as opposed to you know space and earth above below and you take it to mean dimensions and the idea of the torsion field 
and a hyper-dimensional connection to our three-dimensional reality, the physics of vibration, the physics of resonance, the physics of harmony, the physics of disharmony, no matter where you are, should be the same, the same, the same. So if someone is trying to teach us, as they have other places on Mars, about the physics, I can easily see that this could be a template for talking about frequency, wavelength, harmony, resonance, constructive interference, destructive interference, ultimately the wave foundation of reality itself. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a piece of software that I've used in the music studio. People don't know I'm also a musician. And I spent a long time, <laughs> the name of it's gone out of my head, it will come back, but I spent a long time working with this feature that um, what you can take notes and you can play around with them, lifting them up and down, and you can expand the note as well. So if somebody had the time, probably me, <laughs> so I can get into the studio, we could take each of these dots, put them onto the software, and see if they actually... Oh, my God. That would sound amazing. Mm. And I wonder what it would give. I wonder if there's chords within that. Well, if, if it's... It if it's a code, a geomorphic code mm. written in the landscape because it will last the longest, if mm. you make it big enough and massive enough, no matter what happens, it will still be there at some level until it's not. Uh, it sounds to me like an extremely worthwhile avenue to pursue. With this, you know, I want to let everybody know this is my first attempt looking at this structure. So how accurate I am. Um, is open to speculation, but my, you know my, my first my first um, experience with it is, as I said earlier, something jumped out at me. What I'd like you to do is go on to one B when I started doing some further exploration. So if you could click on that for me, Richard. Oh my! Mm. Oh my 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 my! I think oh. this is a two-dimensional grid plot of something. You guys, if I can cut in for a second. Yeah, by all means. Yeah, yeah. One of our listeners sent me a message and said that there is a Vernal Memorial Garden in Utah, and it's a it's a gravesite basically. So I don't know if that's what Keith was referring to, but apparently the crater in the middle of this thing is called Vernal. Okay. And when I hear the word Vernal, I think of Vernal Equinox, but it's not spelled the same way. Yeah. Um. So that's one of the you know, etymological things we'll have to decode. Uh, Ruggiero, I'm looking at what looks like a radial plot on the left, a linear plot on the right, and you've got a scale of 2.18 kilometers. Uh, is that a multiplier? Um, I think that's just the long line from uh, on from one one grid to another. Ah, okay. So Okay. What I did do, unfortunately, I've annotated this on, actually, on a sketch, unfortunately, but um, there's consistent. Let me talk about some of the consistencies, Richard. So if we go on to uh, some long line feature, yeah? you see the first, I call them base pair in symmetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, oh, look at that. They're little cute mirrors of each other. That's right. So this is where it gets interesting. Uh, the, whole, the whole grid is mathematically quite interesting. So base pair number one would take the first alignment of uh, point, point to point. Um, the, 
I'll bring it down. This, the space from tip to tip is, uh, well, here it is. So just stay with me for a minute. Base pair one, tip to tip is 800 meters. Okay. Got that? That's okay. where the, the pyramid is at. It's at the peak on the capsule, yeah? All right. Uh, so tip to tip, 800 meters. Base to base is 500 meters. Exactly, I think, yeah? Because you can do the measure. Base part two of, of base of the pair is 700 meters tip to tip, and again repeated 500 meters base to base. Hmm. So to have two anomalies in one, you know, I think Carl Sagan said if you if you start to see, you know, is it ge- geometry that's the first sign of artificiality? I'm not saying nature can't do stuff like this because it can pick stuff. You know, it will produce in crystalline form. Um, um, but nothing on this scale. No way. No. We, we abandoned that argument back at Sidonia when people mm. were trying to tell me that the pyramids there were giant crystals. Mm. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, they're not. So, okay, when you say base, you're talking about the linear structures on the right of the image, right? Yes. Yeah, so when, I, when I say base, I mean actually on the ground. So you've got the tip. Yeah, but which, you... which features are we talking about? The radial ones with the lines going out like a clock or the ones on the right that are linear with cross linkages? We're, we're starting with the ones on the right, actually. Ah, okay, so okay. We've got, we've got first alignment of two. Can you see it? So yeah, sure. Yeah, so I'm talking tip to tip or base to base. The point is, it's either 800 meters or 500 meters. It's not like 821 meters. Hmm. Oh. And it's symmetry all the way along. I haven't even got to the angles yet. Okay, well, we don't have a lot of time, so we've got to move along here. Okay, so let's go then to the, the fan. I might just jump straight to image number... Uh, yeah, hit, hit the high points. We can always come back and do details later. Okay, image number 1C. You need to see that, Richard. Clicking on 1C. Oh, my God. Oh, isn't that special? Yeah, all right. cow. Yes. With great thanks to Keith Laney for producing such amazing detailed images on which you can do real measurements yeah so what do we got here you got a lot of right angles see that <laughs> oh, you got some interesting pyramidal forms i probably put too much lines on <laughs> for the eye <laughs> but um this is where i need to start you know i need to prove the accuracy with uh, some cad software which i've just downloaded and i will try and use for the first time but uh, I wanted to let you think what jumps out of you as you, you've had a history of researching, you know, obviously the, the images on Cydonia. Well, and the first thing I look for is 19.5 degrees or 33 or 45, um, mm. which are angles in the physics. Yeah. What about 90? Where does that come in? 19? No, 91. Uh, no, no. So you've got like a right angle triangle there. Right, right. Well, right angles, remember, if you have a right angle, um, right angle is orthogonal. In the physics, when you get a right angle, 90 degrees, it it basically moves stuff from the higher dimension into our 3D reality. if, if If you're thinking astrology, you know, right angles in a chart concretize. They they make real stuff happening. George is probably you know rolling her eyes 
you know, when I'm saying this. But no, 90 degrees is a part of the physics, absolutely. Okay. Um, what about straight lines? So we've also got 180 degrees. Well, we have alignments. Remember, you yeah, have you have uh, opposition alignments and conjunction alignments. And I've measured with the Acutron that when you have a conjunctive alignment, meaning things are in a line, celestial mm-hmm. bodies like during an eclipse, sun, moon, earth, you get all kinds of weird, wild, wonderful things happening with the frequency changes in the Acutron. So alignments are, again, critical in measuring the physics in 3D. With this imagery, obviously it's looking straight down, but we've got to take into the curvature of, of, of Mars. Right. Would the curvature of the planet slightly distort uh, what I'm seeing? So it might be more accurate than I think we're seeing, because obviously this is... Uh, well, I don't think Keith did what's called an orthogonal display which means you basically correct for that curvature mm-hmm. we actually had that done i had it done for sedonia by a professional at the rand uh, uh institute in in santa monica the mm-hmm. uh, the air force think tank uh merton davies was his name and he mm-hmm. did this kind of orthogonal you know uh, photogrammetry for nasa for jpl and mm-hmm. i had him do it for sedonia and mm-hmm. that's how we discovered all the exquisite hyperdimensional torsion field angles because when you see the raw imagery or even the public relations products that NASA puts out they don't do these scientific corrections so you're mm-hmm. looking like straight down and mm-hmm. I, I know that Laney didn't have the time to do it so if you were to do that if you're close on things if you make it a flat 2d surface my feeling is that if it's close it'll be right on when the surface is made what's called orthogonal. Yeah, so because I think that the that, that curvature, so the flatness we've got here, when you bring it into what it actually is, it will slightly distort the measurements, but they, mm-hmm. I think they've been enough, and I'm going to redo them for you, Richard. Do we know the scale of this? How, how wide are these structures? Yeah. yeah, let me just jump back onto the original, and I'll tell you. So if we take that, that long line, on the bottom, the, 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 so, the 100. So we want to go to number one, one A. Uh, no, we want we're stay, we're going to stay on on stay on the image you're on. Yeah, so C. one C. Okay. I'm just going to measure right now for you because I've got the, I've got a live in front of me. Um, point to point. Oh, I see down on the right it says 200 meters, so we can. Yeah, two two kilometers. No, it says 200 meters is the scale. Ignore that. So I'm just going through the long line, point to point. I've already measured it. It's, it's approximately two kilometers, 2.7 kilometers. The one, the one that goes from the mound on the left, across the mound in the middle to the mound on the lower right? That's right, two kilometers. Okay. Okay. So then See, one thing, in, when you're preparing these, you should give the, each little mound a, a number or a letter. Yep. So I, I, I would have done that. I just haven't had time this week, but you will, you will have a fully annotated with a fully angled um, diagram for you okay. for some short time in the future. So if I just took mound to the, ver- the first mound to the second mound, so we've got the one on the very left-hand side. I see it. And then to the one above it, that's 500 meters. Oh. Yeah, exactly. So I'm just, and I'm, then I'm going to measure the one this is, above. This is, this is apex to apex. Yeah. All right. So then we got 
got a little flat pyramid at the, at the top for those who are not sure what's going on yet. Um, again, mount to mount is 550, but you've got to, I've got to weigh up, well, where is the middle of each of those mounds? It can be a little bit difficult because there's a lot of erosion on top of them. Yep, yep. Uh, we, are, we are running out of time, okay? We're coming up to the top of the hour, so. I've, I've spoken enough. <laughs> well, well, well let, me, let me kind of synthesize. What you found in this area that Laney did an exquisite job of creating the imagery and assembling into a gigapan is an extraordinary city uh, ser- series of large mound-like structures eerily rem- you know, resembling the mounds seen all over Britain, particularly around Stonehenge. And these are spaced mathematically, geometrically. They appear to be communicating some kind of message. And you're seeing patterns that imply the message, as some of you do, with frequency, harmonics, and wavelengths, right? Yes. Super. And this is, we have no idea where Vernal Crater is. If someone in the audience can look up where Vernal Crater is on Mars, it might be kind of nice to know where on Mars. But since we're finding stuff all over Mars and have for decades, um, exactly where it is is not crucial. It's just that apparently in this place, they chose to lay out something over the scale of miles that is teaching us about harmonics and frequency which of course is the cornerstone of the physics Richard I just want to add one more point and if we go down to my 2a and 2b and we see a place in France which I've been to called Karnak oh Karnak yes yes so so this I would assume was made by um, the our ancient culture that probably got, uh, was the remnants of a culture that got um, left behind, so aka the work of uh, Brian Forrester. So this is man-made stuff, and it doesn't look as accurate as the stuff that we're seeing um, on on Mars, if that makes sense. So it, we're, I think this is from a, obviously a, the Stone Age culture that might have been left behind mm-hmm. in the previous culture that, that uh, you know, might have inhabited our planet. Hmm. So the, the survivors of a catastrophe. Well, um, when you have the transposition of an entire culture, not hmm. just from one continent to another or one country to another, but from one planet to another, hmm. and then you have generations in between, what will this later, you know, 100 generations, 1,000 generations later, what will they do with the cultural memory that was bequeathed to them as their archives, their libraries, their, their uh, you know, verbal, ceremonial uh, rituals, whatever? In other words, how faithful will they be able to reproduce the original materials on the place they left if yeah. they're limited to either human memory or ritual, you know, passage from one generation to the next if they don't have text they don't have imagery or diagrams it's all done you know through memorization i mean i'm surprised we see so much that appears so accurate in 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 the record now because the, the ways of preserving this stuff was so primitive and so much gets lost 
even in one generation, unless you're incredibly obsessively scrupulous about preserving it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Andrew, thoughts? Well, uh, another listener, I think it's the same listener as before, uh, sent us where this is on Mars, and it's very interesting. So Vernal is a crater on Mars located at Oxia Palace Quadrangle. Um, Anyways, listen to this. Uh, There were mineral deposits. It was like a hot spring, and there could be – which comes close to hot springs on Earth, and it is thought to have been formed by the movement of fluids along the boundaries of dipping beds. But they also say there could be remnants of life here. So it's a very interesting, you know, dip, Hmm. as we say. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are um, basically up against it. We're at the top of the hour, the witching hour here in the Land of Enchantment, moving from May 1 to May 2. And when we come back, we may have Tim Saunders with us, and he has some interesting things to talk about in terms of the helicopter. Remember, he's a nautical engineer, a nautical designer, so he knows design. And we've been saying rather pejorative things about little ingenuity. I'm going to have to retract a couple of those, but I'll wait until we get Andrew on to do that. Uh, And so that's going to be uh, what we're going to talk about when we return. My guests this morning are Ruggiero Kahlo and Andrew Curry. We've been discussing some of the interesting geometric um, aspects of uh, this extraordinary set of mounds spread across several miles or kilometers in a uh, distant region of Mars, nowhere uh, near close to Jezero. And then we were gonna get back to talking about the temple and the freeze tigrams, the imagery, the gargoyles, if you will, plainly visible on the vertical sides of this extraordinary 700 foot long structure with a round uh, annex, which is roughly 300 across. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
Welcome back. A witching hour in the land of enchantment in the high desert of New Mexico. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, my guests this morning so far are Andrew Curry and Ruggiero Calo. Waiting in the wings is, of course, uh, uh, Keith Morgan. And Kintia is hovering back there. She had an exhausting day, so um, she asked uh, permission not to... Um, you know, say what she wants to say about some of this stuff until maybe next weekend. And I'm looking forward to her her having time to kind of look at some of this art because the art is amazing. Um, I also want to uh, tell everyone that uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to dip into mission control. Because remember, uh, we're literally looking or listening to the entry of a human manned spacecraft Actually, there's one woman aboard as well. And if I do the right thing here, uh, I think I can. Sometimes there's too many things to do. There we are. Okay, let's see what they're saying in uh, Hawthorne and Houston. We are just moments away from hearing the beginning of the deorbit burn. Ah. Uh, and as, as I was talking, the, um, the, the trunk itself and as well as the propellant used in this deorbit burn, once all is said and done, we'll be shedding about 6,000 pounds uh, of mass from the Dragon spacecraft. So starting off at around 27,000 pounds, all going down to about 21,000 pounds. So those help to, again, lessen the load that the parachutes will have to um, uh, uh, sort of carry when they deploy and eventually slow down the spacecraft. This is just absolutely an incredible view, and this is coming to us from the International Space Station. So I do still have a little bit of an eye on Dragon. Uh, once Crew Dragon begins that re-entry period following the deorbit burn completion, we uh, hope to have infrared imagery thanks to the WV-57 aircraft uh, that has departed from Ellington and is in the proper location and they have thermal imagery uh, systems aboard fingers crossed we get some visuals of crew dragon re-entering the earth's atmosphere and right on time we also have the start of the deorbit burn as we mentioned this should last 16 minutes 26 seconds so this has fully committed uh, Crew Dragon to coming home. So just within the last 10 minutes, Crew Dragon jettisoned its trunk and initiated this deorbit burn just a minute ago. And, and that's a good time to kind of dip out of this. We will come back in. It takes about uh, 45 minutes from the time in Earth orbit you do a burn to when you re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, literally halfway around the world. Because remember, one full orbit is 90 minutes. So home and transfer orbits are, you do something here, <clears throat> half an orbit later is when it actually takes place. So they will be re-entering the Earth's atmosphere in about 45 minutes. So toward the end of the other side of midnight, because it is the other side of midnight now, uh, we'll come back to Houston and to Hawthorne and we'll pick up uh, on the actual uh, uh, entry and, and landing. So in the meantime, uh, Andrew, let's go back to you and pick up uh, – before we do that, let me ask this. Is uh, Tim Saunders with us? Good morning. Yes, I am. Oh, and he's had his tea. I can tell. You can tell. The old gray is in, in, the, in the voice. Yes, there we go. Have you been able to listen to any of the conversation for the last couple of hours? 
I haven't actually no. No, it's it's early early doors here, so <laughs> I'm literally just waking up. Now we're today. gonna have to we're gonna have to move Turkey or move you. So <clears throat> <laughs> okay, sounds like a good plan. So where would you like to pick up? We've talked about a little bit about ingenuity and how they transferred her um, responsibilities from tech demo to now operational demo which of course is the only logical thing they could do. Uh, I don't know why they didn't announce they might do this in the beginning, um, but they're doing it and I'm incredibly happy. Um, I said a little while ago that I'd made some comments in our conversation that were somewhat derogatory and I'm gonna take those back now because I've actually got a copy uh, on the um, uh, other side of midnight website in my items, let me go tell you where they are, clicking on fast links. I'm so glad Kinthea has figured out how to do this. So if you go to item number 11, the one that was made up by the Perseverance team uh, a day or so ago, they made a poster with ingenuity, uh, kind of poised in mid-flight. And at the bottom, they have a I want to believe um, sign post, very, uh, emblematic of the X-Files and that covers a multitude of sins. You know, we all want to believe that all the things that we're looking at are in fact corroboratable and are true. If you click on that item number 11 in my uh, items tonight in radio with pictures, you will find a manual um, put out by the project. This was a paper that was published by the AIAA, which is the American Institute for Aeronautics and astronautics, one of the most venerated uh, aerospace institutions in America. And if you uh, look at this, it says Mars Helicopter Technology Demonstrator. It's uh, uh, Bob Ballaram, who's the chief engineer. It's got a whole bunch of other uh, JPL scientists and engineers who also are listed in the paper. Everything you wanted to know, sounds like an old Johnny Carson line. Everything you ever wanted to know, but didn't know who to ask about the Ingenuity helicopter is in this paper, including a section on the power and energy system. And one of the little things that I kind of skipped over in my, uh, again, you know, misplaced derogatory comments, I kept saying that little tiny solar panel wouldn't be very, very much use on Mars, where sunlight is much dimmer because you're farther from the sun and the size of it, even if it's a super highly efficient 50% converter, it still would, it turns out I was wrong about all that. And I'll tell you why. Because they're only flying it on a cadence of once a week. If it sits there and the power curves for the heating and the other loads on the batteries are listed, when you do the numbers, there's more than enough energy to fly this little thing on the solar panel, if you trickle charge the batteries from exposing it to sunlight for a few Martian days. And if you're only flying like once a week and you're only flying for like two, two or three minutes, there's more than enough energy within known physics to allow little ingenuity to work the way it's advertised. And frankly, I'm very happy because the more I can drive away the conspiracy aspects of what NASA is doing, and hone in on the verifiable technical uh, engineering, the better. 
What do you think? Well, I would say that you were not alone in being derogatory. I was also very derogatory about the, uh, I think I called it a pathetic little solar panel <laughs> and uh, clunky looking design, apart from the feet and the rotor blade. But I mean, I, I think that just because there's a paper with um, one hell of a lot of nomenclature, did you actually check out some of these equations? Because to me, it was uh, the paper didn't really turn me on. I just thought it was a mass of letters and uh, everything else. But I didn't actually see very much about the solar panel. And again, we have to take it all on face value. But just, you know, if you look at something. Well, uh, no, it says your solar panel is made from inverted metamorphic cells from solo aero technologies. The cellar optimized for Mars solar spectrum and occupy a rectangular area of 680 square centimeters of, of substrate, 544 centimeters active cell area in a region centered immediately above the coaxial rotors. And again, if you have a very small amount of electricity, but you can store it over a long period of time, I mean, that's how, that's how perseverance and curiosity work. You have I get all of that, Richard, but it, it doesn't tell us, it doesn't prove any more that they're just saying that it works. It's a very fancy way of them saying, we, we, we say it works. That's it. Well, unless you, know, you want to believe that all the videos are totally faked in, in some, you know, back room of JPL, um, I'm, I'm seeing little subtle things. Like one of the things that Ron and I were discussing earlier in the week was, is this thing really a T. Townsend Brown device, meaning instead of flying by rotors, it's actually flying by a variant of electrogravitics, you know, an anti-gravity technology developed by Townsend Brown back in the 1920s and documented very, very meticulously by a friend and colleague of ours, uh, Paul Violet, in his book on anti-gravity and all of the black ops, you know, U.S. government secret projects which have been working on this stuff since the 1950s. And Brown was working on it uh, since the 1920s. Anyway, if you, if you don't want that kind of exotic technology, which came out of our discussion of alternate power sources apart from solar cells, mm -hmm. and you say the thing is flying on the rotors, one thing we know about helicopters is in order to fly on rotors, if you want to go in a certain direction, the helicopter has to tilt. Sure. If you look at the videos, the helicopter is flying and tilting exactly the way it should if it's really flying on Mars in an atmosphere and the rotors are doing the work. And it accelerates and then they rotate the other way and they slow down because, you know, action and reaction, you have to kind of tilt your rotors in the direction away from where you're going to use the, the wash to slow down before you can hover and then land. All, all of that is in these videos. That's why number eight, look at it again and again and again. You'll see all the subtle features that, now you can say, as any conspiracy can, well, the conspirators are thinking of all of this. They programmed in all of these details to make it convincing. And of course that line of reasoning goes nowhere because at some point you can say, well, you know, like Musk is saying, all of life is a virtual reality program and we're nothing but pawns of some super, super AI. 
at some point that is not a useful conversation. So I'm assuming this morning, A, the helicopter is flying the way we're told. It's powered the way we're told. It's performing the way we're told. And I'm much more intrigued with their transition from the tech demo to the operational usage of ingenuity to be a scout in the Perseverance Science mission because where they're going, they're, by the way, they decided to take the southern route. Where they're going brings them much closer to the really amazing, <clears throat> massive pyramidal arcology structures to the south part of Yezero, including the ones that are angled just like the pyramids at Giza to mimic the belt stars of Orion. And although the rover would take years to get there, they could hop with ingenuity from landing pad to landing pad to landing pad. And they could give us aerials, stunning aerials of these massive structures within a year, which again, geopolitically, depending upon what the Chinese are doing, would put us in the time frame of what I think of as the potential disclosure window, which opens up after June because of the Senate Intelligence Committee and their report to be made public on the unidentified aerial phenomenon that the Nimitz and the Roosevelt and the New York Times have been talking about 2017. So do we have a date? That's in June sometime, isn't it? Do we have a date? It, it was supposed to be June 1. There have been – it's now – they're saying toward the end of June. And I think these are all movable feasts because there's a lot of backroom negotiation going on. Like, why are the Chinese who got there into orbit before we did, why are they waiting? They're not waiting to do many rather aggressive things down here on planet Earth. But when they could scoop NASA and scoop the world and become immortalized, a culture which is overly focused on the concept of heaven, again, heaven, 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 you know, um, heavenly uh, harmony is the name of their new space station. Uh, Questions of heaven is the name of the Mars mission with a orbiter, a lander, and a rover, but they're waiting for something. And as I said last week, I think they're waiting to collaboratively explore the archaeology in the open of Yezero and all that is waiting for the right time when we move into that phase of terrestrial geopolitics where we admit we're not alone and we had ancestors and they came from Mars. I think they're probably waiting for the correct landing coordinates because uh, why, why would you go out on path finding when you can wait for somebody else to do it and it lands exactly in the right place. Well, NASA has been doing it for decades and we know the Chinese have stolen everything that NASA has got. They advertise that with their poster. Remember their poster for questions of heaven with the little lander and the rover sitting on it posted in front of a curiosity mission of an ancient arcology at Gale Crater, Mm -hmm. which of course was their, you know, Emily Dickinson between the lines This is what we're going to do, boys and girls. We're going to announce there's human structures on another planet. So given that they've stolen everything from NASA in terms of landing sites and environmental parameters and all that, 
What could they be waiting for? The one legitimate thing, and there's no way to know this for certain, but the one legitimate thing that they could be doing while they're upstairs in orbit, they could be checking on the atmosphere of Mars itself. Because as we've been saying now for weeks, from all these various lines of circumstantial evidence, including some comments that uh, Bob Balamem made at the press conference a couple of days ago regarding the, the power curves of how much energy Ingenuity is using to fly, I think he mm. kind of slipped, and it seems to be a lot easier, and they're lo- using a lot less energy, and that would imply a thicker, more benign atmosphere for flying. You know, we don't have a memo, but we have all these little bits and pieces of outside evidence that point toward the atmosphere is different than NASA has been telling the world for 50 years. If the Chinese want to successfully land, they have to in situ check out the atmosphere themselves, and that should be why they're waiting, because it takes time to do the right science so you don't crash. True, true. I mean, I don't wish to go full circle about this <laughs> solar panel, but I am cynical because to me it doesn't look big enough. And you can say, yes, you have a paper that says it is big enough. But still, I find from what I do in my day job is, you know, quite often when I calculate something, it is almost exactly as the first idea that popped into my head about the size of the thickness of a piece of metal, aluminium or steel or whatever we're building, the thickness of glass that I'm, you know, because intrinsically uh, we have an ability to come up with the answer without having to display it in a in a methodical sort of, you know, textual way. And that's just basically tapping into our experience and our knowledge. So I'm saying that the solar panel does not appear to be big enough. And I, I listened to this press conference, um, the NASA JPL press conference. I think it was quite long, quite you know, full of a panel of different people all wearing an array of very tightly uh, drawn different types of masks. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit comic, really, in my opinion. But I was interested to hear uh, one of the, the, the points was that the, the battery is not the bottleneck in terms of the flight duration. No, uh, that's brand new. But don't you know that's a brand new item? Yeah, but apparently the bottleneck is the overheating of the motors. And they claim that the every one second that the motors are running, the temperature elevates by one degree Celsius. Mm-hmm. So if you're flying for 117 seconds, then presumably you're going from whatever the ambient temperature is to something in excess of the boiling points of water on Earth, so 117 degrees. So that's, that's the reason why they keep the flight short, apparently. Well, but see, yeah. that's, that's a very different statement than they made in the beginning. I know. See, I, that's what well, well, but see, that's, that's another why I'm cynical. <laughs> but no, no. See, but that's why I think it's a, it's a window into reality. Because what are the what are the only three ways you can get rid of heat in three dimensional reality? Conduction, right? Right. Convection, right? Right. And radiation. Condu- conduction is if you put your hand on a hot stove. 
You don't keep it there long because it conducts the stove to your hand and it gets very painful in milliseconds, okay? Yeah. Convection is when you have an atmosphere and the atmosphere, the gases are literally boiling, roiling, moving, convecting, uh, and carrying, transporting the heat away. The third way, radiation, is when you uh, just heat an object up and it radiates in, in this uh, energy, but the other two uh, sources of getting rid of heat, convection or conduction, uh, are not operative because there is no air. There's no atmosphere. You're in space. You're in a vacuum. The fact that they're now limited by uh, not power, but by the heat capacity of the motor in that little box tells me something has changed. Like the ambient temperature on Mars is supposed to be when they're doing flights, um, like 18 or 20 below zero Fahrenheit mm -hmm. during the day and like 130 below at night, okay? And because the atmosphere is supposed to be so thin, 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 mainly you're getting rid of, of the heat through radiation. Conduction yeah. and convection don't really apply. No. However, if the atmosphere of Mars is fluffier, if it's denser, it means the temperature regime in which they're flying is totally different. And the ambient temperature outside must be a lot warmer because of greenhouse effects. Um, and so they're starting at a much higher temperature. And so temperature becomes critical because even if it's somewhat denser atmosphere, let's say one-tenth the Earth's atmosphere as opposed to one-one-hundredth, that's not going to be enough to convect away the heat. So it's going to be um, basically a heat balance where in this box, which is at an ambient that's much higher than we've been told, that motor temperature can go up, as you said, to above the boiling point of water very quickly if you run it more than a couple of minutes. So again, another circumstantial piece of evidence between the lines that they're not limited by the battery or the amount of accumulated energy from the little solar panel. They're limited mm -hmm. by the environment, which says, like all the other things I've been pointing out, the atmosphere of Mars has to be thicker by a factor of 10. We should also think, remember that the, when the rotor blades are rotating, that will also cause some form of downdraft, hence the fact that it gives lift. And that downdraft in itself will also cool uh, the, the motors to some extent. Not very much. Not very will. much. No, 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 no. Yeah, well, during this press conference, uh, there was an opportunity for people to communicate through social media. So I, I just plugged away. I asked three questions. And the first one was yeah, a little bit cheeky. I said, the solar panel doesn't look big enough to me. Could you please explain the capacity, uh, the capability of the panel, the, the, the battery, and also the capacity of the uh, typical motor drain? Um, they didn't answer, of course. The second question I asked for um, is, is the density of the atmosphere on Mars as you expected? I note it was necessary to upload modified codes to Ingenuity prior to the first delayed flight. 
and they didn't answer. And the third question was, why does Perseverance keep tracking multiple photos um, of the Martian sky? What are you mapping? And again, that wasn't answered either. <laughs> I wonder why. Well, I'm not surprised because can you imagine how many people all over the world are trying to get questions in? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't read anything positive or negative. It's just that I, I thought of doing that myself, um, and I figured it was a kind of a lost leader because the idea that throwing one pebble in a pond will possibly get any oh. attention with a million other pebbles is. You say that, Richard, but it was a very early press conference. It was something like 8:30 in the morning. And the other point was that when I, between my questions, which were not, you know, it takes a few seconds for me to type these questions and think and uh, contemplate what you know, may happen and see if they even react. But between my questions, there were only about, let's say, 15 other questions from people on the planet. So when you say a pebble in the pond... But you don't know the total point. number. You only know the number that they picked to, to, uh, to uh, no, read. No, you see the Twitter feed. Twitter feed is the complete collection. Oh, they have other sources. They have Facebook. They've got um, Instagram. True. It's not just, you know, there's but a the whole... Comments, they're, they're, the comments they're, in this press conference were going through this one, one channel. That's what I'm saying. There were not that many people online, strangely. Hmm. Well, I mean, if, if that's true, it, again, doesn't give us anything dispositive. Because I can see why your questions were so technical, they might think they're not appealing to a general audience and pick something that's more fuzzy and lovable and all that, which I think a couple of them kind of were. Like, for instance, when they asked Mimi, <clears throat> what, how did the rover, uh, how did the helicopter feel? Remember that one? I, I think I filtered that one out. <laughs> she was asked, how did the little helicopter feel flying on Mars? And she did this whole lyrical thing about it felt freedom. and all. I mean, it was totally absurd technically, but it's the kind of, you know, uh, uh, there used to be a term for this. Um, uh, I, I forget what the news term is. For something that's kind of at the, quote, level of the common person that they can relate to. So I wouldn't. I, I would say that ignoring your technical questions, to me, it doesn't mean there's a weird political thing there. It's just that they were too technical for what they were trying to do. Um, we are coming down to the bottom of the hour. When we come back, you have some audio. I think you want to play for us, and I want to go back to talk about the atmosphere. Uh, we've got uh, um, Andrew, who I think has can think of been able to post your. Uh, your uh, sketches of the temple freezes yet? Yes, she did. Excellent. She did. So we've got all that. Plus, let me do this. For a night splashdown. Really lining up perfectly for splashdown tonight. And we are, we are continuing to watch Crew Dragon execute all of the pre-programmed maneuvers. Uh, the next major one now with the nose cone secured and all of those hooks secured. Uh, and we have that to come back to. So everyone stay exactly where you are. We're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Um, we will definitely be returning right after these messages.
Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed, and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. And if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. When I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. One half hour to go. We've got a space mission about to enter the atmosphere and plop down a few miles offshore of Panama City with four human beings on board and a gorgeous quarter moon shining on a placid, almost still as a lake, Gulf of Mexico. Meanwhile, on the planet Mars, about 100 million miles away, there are two little robots, one about the size of an SUV, the other somewhat smaller than a bread box. And the one that's smaller than a bread box, it can fly. So I'll tell you what, um, Andrew, um, I want to pick up several things on the helicopter, because to me, the helicopter represents a stunning breakthrough in how we're going to get the truth. And I want to direct everyone to my radio with pictures. Um, um, What you want to do is look at number nine. This is written by the uh, so-called pilot of Ingenuity, who's really a computer programmer sitting in a nice, uh, you know, air-conditioned office there at JPL, writing code and looking at engineering inputs and all that. It's a very long piece. 
describing a lot of technical details about their flight so far in terms of control moments, accelerations, uh, movement through the air, uh, wind gusts. I, uh, Andrew, uh, Tim, I am blown away how casually JPL keeps talking about wind gusts. During the entire X-15 program, or during uh, Kittinger, who was the first guy to jump out of a stratospheric balloon at 70-some thousand feet you know, decades ago, I never heard anybody talk about wind gusts at 100,000 feet over the planet. I mean, the air is just so damn thin, yet they keep talking about how um, little ingenuity has to constantly correct for wind gusts and how they're measuring the wind, and it matches what the, uh, you know, the um, uh, meteorology experiment on Perseverance itself is, is measuring, except at altitude, you know, uh, five, ten meters up, the winds are a little stronger as they get stronger when you go higher, because the surface drag is, is less, you know, the, what they call that, um, not uh, turbidity currents or uh, drag or whatever the the air moving across the surface, there's a certain amount of drag that keeps the velocities lower. Anyway, they're acting as if this is a much denser atmosphere, but they don't say it. But everything that we're looking at, all these various inputs, are telling me that the atmosphere of Mars has got to be at least 10 times denser than the atmosphere that we've been told about for 50 years. Richard, if I may, it's Andrew here. Yeah, sure. Is this one of those situations where um, they have to get a peer-reviewed scientific study put into place before they can actually admit it? Or, I mean, what is with being cagey about this? Do you know what I mean? Like, do they have to check off certain boxes first and really have everybody agree who is, you know, pertinent in this study? Is that the way this works? Because it's a very good question that you ask. Or are they just pulling the wool over our eyes? You know, I find the title of the Ingenuity helicopter, I want to believe. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> come on. I mean, and then the first thing that's in the first paragraph is, you know, we're able to get small payloads and move them to, it's, you know, like they're, they're telling us. They're, like, if this thing goes up, it's going to show us the layout of Jezero City. If it can get close to the freezes, we're going to see gargoyles staring at it, just like as if it's up against Notre Dame Cathedral, unless they mess around with the camera again. I want to believe. Uh, I don't know. It, 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 you know, it's a shell game, and I'd like to know, are we having to go through procedures, or are we following another ritual? I think it's both. I think the ritual is overwhelming, because remember, if, if we're dealing with the high church, of NASA, <clears throat> if these people are somehow either self-appointed or appointed by the shadowy forces that run the planet Earth, which we're going to talk about with my Masonic expert tomorrow night, these, these shows have been carefully cr crafted to kind of fit together. How much is a small group really running everything? Remember, I'm saying over and over again that the political realities of China versus the U.S., the Communist Chinese Party versus, you know, uh, the two parties in the United States is not really where it's at. 
That's all a shell game. It's kind of a false front for Temkin Village. The real, real politique is much bigger, much deeper, and much more important to these people. And everything else is just kind of like window dressing. And the fact that the Chinese have been sitting in orbit for two months while NASA does all this stuff, given where the stuff is, which leads me elegantly to item number two, Andrew, in your uh, radio with pictures. So everybody click on item number two in Andrew's uh, fast links and talk to us about item number two, because this is now by attaching ingenuity formally to the Perseverance mission, it has now put this extraordinary, incredible, incredibly large and large scale and sophisticated set of ruins that are just to the south of where Percy landed within reach of an innovative helicopter reconnaissance program. Because remember, Ingenuity is totally autonomous. Ingenuity has on board something like two gigs of memory. It's got the fastest processor in the solar system, except for those here on Earth. It can do its own mission of reconnaissance by literally moving, as my grandmother would say, from lily pad to lily pad to lily pad. In other words, if you were really conducting a clandestine archaeological mission of the stuff that's to the south, and I want you to describe what you've done here in a moment, the way you do it is you have little ingenuity go from right field to a new flight, which will be flight number five, I think they're going to pick a new landing place and then stage from there. And then you pick one further on and one further on and one further on. And they're all safe because you checked them out with the cameras, you know, so there are no rocks and all that. You simply program it to go from point A to point B to point C to point D to point F. And then from F to E to D to E to C to A or B and then to A. In other words, the whole thing can be run automatically. It doesn't have to check in. And they're telling us they're only going to be flying another couple of times in the coming month. What does that tell us? It tells us that they wanted to do a clandestine mission and send ingenuity off in a safe way to accumulate lots and lots of data, aerial imagery, for 3D topo maps and stereo and all of that, all that could be done on the on the QT. And when it gets back within range, which is 3,000 feet, it can communicate by radio to Perseverance. It downloads all of the data it stored in its two gig memory, because programs don't take a lot of imaging that does, you know, mosaics, that kind of thing. That could eat up memory very quickly. But even if each image was like, you know, uh, one megabyte, in a two gig memory, you could store a thousand images. Yeah. There's no way that they could exhaust a thousand images on this hopping from, as my grandmother said, um, lily pad to lily pad to lily pad. And, and, you know, to me, this is what they decided to do, to run a parallel reconnaissance mission using ingenuity which is performing really really well in every regard and so you want to read 
uh, what's his name, the, the, the flight guy, you know, whose uh, <clears throat> document I posted to see how well it's going. I think that this mission now has a formal Oumuamua, a scout, to secretly do reconnaissance on what you're going to talk about now in item number two. Yeah. Um, can you set up the image that I used? This was actually from last week. Um, so I'm lagging behind you, the scout, Richard, by a week. But... You, you have it posted at the top of item number two. Oh, what we're after. Yeah. Yeah. This is simply part of that mosaic, that pan yeah. produced by the um, EDL uh, lander vision system camera that was looking down as Perseverance landed yeah. on, on, on the parachute. And so this particular um, citizen scientist took an algorithm that stretched that out so you could see it as an oblique, like you were in the helicopter looking down on it. And you see this stunning array of massive pyramids and enclosures and intricate, you know, lattice work and right angles and and things that look like um, freeways. And they're all just south of where Perseverance is going with a little helicopter that can tag along or go ahead. And it doesn't need to report back every night. It can sit and do its thing for days before it comes back and dumps its data in Perseverance's computers. Yeah. So uh, just to let everybody know exactly what Richard said is that this is one of um, the images of Perseverance when it first landed. And this suddenly popped up on this citizen scientist. I, I, I don't know if it was a Reddit thing, Richard, or not. But the point is it got inserted again, and it's like, oh, isn't that cool? Nice topography of Jezero. No, it, there's geometry here. And I, I zoned in on a couple of spots, or, yeah, a couple of spots that are sort of, I think, kind of joined up. And again, you, again, Richard, just to let everybody know, as Ruggiero knows, you know, you really have to spend some time in these images. But once you do... Everything comes out. I, if again, I, I don't unless Mars is like segmented and put together with walls, like like their mountains. Then I, I'm I'm baffled by the by the natural processes of Mars. Because Richard, these are structures, and some of these ones at the bottom that you kind of captured. Because I, I know you did a little work on this image in terms of a bit of processing. It just brought out again right angles and where I would put if I was designing a city. I would put these build what I'm calling buildings basically kind of aligned like this. And there's these beautiful curvatures that I, you know, like you say, they're almost like roadways. You can see it in my drawing that I've brought out. And I, I started to get overwhelmed. The more I looked at this and the more I go, Oh my gosh, I could do a whole layout. And then I wanted it to go down low and imagine what this thing looks like from a sort of a lower angle, which is what the helicopter is going to do. So yeah, over and over again, if you, if you gloss over it, sure, it just looks like eh, it's just some mounds and it's just some volcanic type activity from billions of years. No, 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 no. This stuff is unbelievable. Well, the, the, the magic word is organization. Yes, yes, thank you. Yeah, and I, you, you just have to, you can feel it. Anybody who looks at a topographical map of any city, um, I've been putting in the chat box, um, a friend of the show, Robert Morningstar, has been watching SpaceX coming down, and I know Richard will give us an update, and he's been um, watching the, the astronauts who are sitting there cool as cucumbers, and 
when they're coming down, if they're he- well, they're at night, so they're not they'll see lights. But if they were in the daytime, this is the kind of organization they would see right here on terrestrial Earth. And Richard, this is what we're seeing over and over again. And if we come out of that and go to my number three, um, if if we could do that, what I did here is I put the same drawing that I did and lined it up with this these fascinating comics that I found on that um, website we were talking about that talks about um, John Carter of Mars and um, these beautiful these beautiful comics. I'm not sure how old they are, but the first one is called Horts, and, and uh, it, it looks like a city buried, literally like the drawing that I did based on the image that Richard brought to my attention, half buried in the sand, and in the comic, the, the comment is the city is Horts, and it says, water built it, lack of water spelled its doom, and that was from John Carter, and then below that is another city called Dorvas, which is actually not part of the original canon, but the point is, these artists were visualizing something, Richard, and now we're doing it here. So organization, an ancient, half-buried, totally eroded and destructed um, – uh, yeah, destructed um, cityscapes. Absolutely. See, if you took, showed any of this to a city planner, they would instantly recognize not the forms yeah. but the geometric layout. There's, there's nothing random about those plazas. There's nothing random about those alignments, those two twins, those yeah. two eroded twin massive pyramids. I mean, we're talking structures which are miles across. We're talking Sidonia scale structures, but they're newer. And one of the fun things is going to be to try to, to duplicate um, the, uh, the actual time sequence. I think we got something going on. We got an infrared image from the RB-47s. We're going to mission control. So the, the capsule itself and um, uh, that lightweight material. Oh, I can see, I can see the fireball behind the re-entering spacecraft on NASA TV. Here, as it uh, leaves that trail behind, um, and then again that that. The illuminations from all of that heat um, that is building up uh, due to friction of just the reentry speeds of Dragon when it meets the Earth's atmosphere. And that view coming from the boat, Go Navigator, Crew Dragon continuing, as you said, into to enter Earth's atmosphere. So uh, having these two views right now, with it being a, a nighttime splashdown, pretty exciting that we're getting. Uh, two two good views upon reentry into Earth's atmosphere. This is the kind of stuff we use at CBS. We take feeds from several different quarters. A lot of things are happening. Actualities uh, pretty rapidly here in about three minutes. The first set of parachute. Okay, so we'll dip out of that. Andrew, you wanted to go to another item, please. Yes. So um, thank you, Kinthea. As usual, she's a goddess, <laughs> and she got it done. <laughs> With all of us cats, now I'm, of course, I've lost where I'm at. But if you go to my items. Item number one in yeah, Andrew's section. Me, oh, look at this. Oh, my God. Look at this. Meow, 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 yeah. meow, meow. <laughs> Holy so, cow. Yeah. So, Richard, can you quickly describe the image again? I know we're getting close to the end, but the top image is, is something that you um, 
brought my attention to. Yeah, well, earlier in the week, um, they, uh, the very top one is a series of mosaics stitched together from this SuperCam telescope that's on Perseverance, which I think has about a 10 to 1 magnification. So they simply took image after image after image across the squat cylindrical face of what I call the roundhouse section of the temple, which is two miles to the west of this. And um, they put them together and they did a horrible job. So I did a lot of work. I spent days doing this, bringing out, you know, trying to filter the noise, trying to filter the vignetting because the images are much brighter in the center than they are at the edges and all that. Finally, I got something that I could see. Then I realized that the best preserved stuff was not on the left, it was on the far right, because that's where the winds are prevailing most of the time from the south, west, and west, which means the left part of this set of friezes uh, in this cylindrical fashion, several hundred feet high and 300 feet wide, um, um, would be uh, you know, facing erosion by the prevailing atmospheric winds on Mars. But the protected side, which is on the, on the far right, that's the north and the northeast corner. You can't have a corner on a, on a round building, but as it curves around, that part is better protected, and that's where the most preserved stuff is. And oh my God, look what you found there! You know, I was tonight. I was looking at uh, my old cat. Uh, I know um, Ruggiero was talking about his old sixteen-year-old cat. I have a fifteen-year-old cat. And he was sitting, he usually walks on my work and I was frantically trying to get work done. And he was, I told him, you got to stay on my paper shredders right now, which is beside me. And he looked at me, Richard, with such fondness and affection. I looked straight into his eyes. You know, he's, he's an old man. He's been around our home a long time. And it was the same kind of thing I saw staring out of this wall. I know I may be waxing poetic a bit, but this is the kind of stuff we see over and over and over again. And in this particular region, you can almost see the whiskers. Yeah. I know, I know. It's 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 extraordinary. And I'm going to do more work over the week to pull more of this out for next weekend um, because there's so much more. And you're right. The imagery or the the sculptures to the left are way more worn down. But you can still catch these mm -hmm. regular glimpses of them, and they're spaced out beautifully. And I'll, I'll capture it. But I don't know at what point do we not acknowledge there's something going on here that's, you know, beyond natural processes. It's just becoming so obvious. And if that camera on Ingenuity can take any clarity of pictures, it's going to be stunning. And it's going to come from multiple angles. That's one thing Keith Laney always said: is if we get images of a particular feature from a few different angles to prove that it's still, you know, it's still working from different angles in terms of it's um, what we think it is, then it's incontrovertible. <laughs> What's the word? It's, it's incontrovertible. Incontrovertible. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, I, I could go all day on this and there's, and, and the beautiful thing, Richard, is that these, these faces, they seem to almost meld into the next. And there's almost like sometimes you can see two at the same time, but not quite. And it's almost multidimensional, which to me says something about the people that made it. You talked about it being almost like cubism. And, you know, the, the big feature of cubism is that the artists were trying to look at every single surface of an object okay. at the same time. Moving from Mars back to Earth, I just saw 
Decent concurs. Nominal decent, right? The drogues open. She's now on the mains. Coming from the WB57, very clear image of those four main parachutes slowing the vehicle down to what will be about 16 miles per hour prior to splashdown just off the coast of Panama City, Florida. If it were daylight, we would have an image of those four beautiful parachutes being orange and white and still getting these incredible views, even though we are in a nighttime splashdown. Okay, Tim, um, I wanted to play your your uh, sound. It's what, about three minutes? Yeah, it's, uh, it, we don't need to play the full thing. I think it comes fairly soon. Just to give some context, this is a, an excerpt from uh, a one-on-one interview with Elon Musk, which was done recently to explain the carbon capture competition, which he's set up with... Uh, no, wait, wait. I'm seeing it says helicopter ingenuity flying on Mars, why the fourth flight was rescheduled. So that's not the one. Then I don't... Let me just- then I then I don't have the other soundbite, okay? And, and we go ahead. Go ahead. Well, we don't have much time because we're five minutes to the end of the show. Um, they're about to splash down. There's an amazing infrared shot on NASA TV showing a beautiful moonlit night in the Gulf of Mexico. So I guess it's time for kind of wrap up thoughts for this week. Um, let's let's start with you, Tim. Where are we and where are we, where are we going to be in a week's time? Well, I think that the my take on it is what we're seeing in on NASA TV, what we're seeing on the Internet from various uh, cameras and shots and uh, imaging on Mars is almost led by the questions which we're establishing here. In other words, we saw a video of the helicopter taking off and people saying, oh, look, there's no dust. And then the next thing is a video, is in, an enhanced video is released with dust. So I think that, you know, what they are obviously what improving it, that's an evolution process, also getting coming to terms with the actual atmosphere that is on Mars as opposed to the one they believe was there. But equally, I believe that they're looking to mold their the media to satisfy the level of curiosity of people here to basically, in my opinion, sorry to be cynical, fob us off so they can just get on with the full mission, which is to go and check for archaeology as opposed to, you know, uh, do very sort of okay. you know, two plus two sorry is four to interrupt. Spacecraft, experimental things. Spacecraft just splashed down. There's a gorgeous color view. The boats with the searchlights. Uh, when you guys can see all this uh, on the recording, it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, okay, we got about uh, two minutes. Ruggiero on Mars or anything. Uh, yeah, let's compare natural features of uh, geology on Earth to Mars. It seems like Mars is able to spontaneously create uh, alignments of natural geological features. So that's <laughs> I think we should take it next. Okay. Andrew, you're up. Yeah. Well, Richard, if this is a religion and we're the great unwashed, not allowed to be part of it, there's going to come a time when they have to open the doors to the church, and we're all going to be part of it going forward, or we're never going to advance. So, Well, I have a feeling we're very, very close. I mean really close, because by changing the ingenuity profile, making her an adjunct to the mission, 
they have crossed a boundary they cannot go back across because with those capabilities and that color camera, we'll know a lot when we uh, see the next color images to see if the kind of noise has magically disappeared in preparation for her real mission. Hey, I want to thank everyone you know, for participating in today's kind of disjointed show. I want to wish Ron to get much better soon. He'll be back with us hopefully next week, and we will have surprises for you. And again, the man of the hour just landed successfully a spacecraft in the Gulf of Mexico, and he's the one that's going to take us to the moon on to Mars. And I think you can probably take that to the bank. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bad channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.